<laughs> that, that's what United are. They're a trust fund. They're also a content provider. Yeah, a sitcom and football club is not really one of them anymore. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's bang on half past seven and we're uh, on Wednesdays. OTB AM. I had to think about that one. Owen is here, Owen. How are you? Colm is here. Hi guys. Hey, less croaky this morning, Colm. How are you? <laughs> I was perfectly fine yesterday. It's the exact same as I sounded yesterday. I'd have to grab a cardigan because it's a bit cold in the studio. Uh, we'd, like, we'd like to keep people on their toes, of course. 0879 is the WhatsApp number if you want to get in touch with us. Um, we've been following the overnight travel arrangements of Shamrock Rovers and it turns out they've landed in Dublin, not Shannon, because uh, it was too foggy for them to land. So Mark Lynch, their PRO, has been... Uh, texting this morning or tweeting this morning heavy fog at Shannon Airport two attempted landings Rovers back in Dublin uh, so you know all's, all's well that ends well what, what an amazing achievement first off and also the travel arrangements have proved to be okay in the end no the travel arrangements are the big thing here That's, uh, we, we have not buried the lead and it is looking at Scoopy on the ground and kicking him while they're down it's like look at you out of the competition and we get to land in Dublin this is how you do it uh, so maybe Shoopy were right all along. The conspiracy was real. And uh, efforts to shunt him over to Shannon Airport were actually some sort of inner workings of the Illuminati of Irish football. There you go. Um, which apparently had been acting against Rovers, uh, according to the Rovers crowd in advance. They were like, this is not good. Somebody, Something's not good here because all the European teams are able to fly straight into Dublin and we're not. Hmm. Somebody's computer is very loud, which makes a change. Hey, Colm, how are you? Welcome to the studio. Hi, Jared. Let me in. We're supposed to be here talking about Serena. Beep, 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 Serena. <laughs> so Serena Williams yesterday, um, in typical Serena Williams style, uh, authored a first-person essay in Vogue. We're going to talk more about Rovers with Gavin Cooney in a few minutes. Um, and it was an unusual place for a, a tennis player to announce their impending retirement. Uh, but I suppose it was actually a mark of the position that Serena Williams holds in pop culture slash the outside world, that it wasn't a sports organisation that Serena went to to tell her story. It wasn't the player's voice. It was um, it was Vogue. What what was your immediate reaction, Colin? Were you surprised, or did you think ultimately this was coming? I was surprised she announced it or even acknowledged the fact that she was going to retire. She said herself in the essay that she doesn't like using the word retiring, and I thought that herself and Roger Federer would never actually formally announce their retirement. Like John McEnroe never actually retired, just eventually stopped playing because I thought they wouldn't bring themselves to do that and they would never rule out returning in their mid to late 40s or something, such as their dedication and obsession with the game. So I was surprised that it arrived and I was surprised as well that she announced it before the last Grand Slam of the year. But I'm guessing her intention is to finish this season out, this summer season in America and then call it a day there. At the same time, like, I wouldn't be absolutely shocked if she did reverse that decision and returned in uh, a year or two down the line. The, a couple of interesting things. Uh, they, I, I, when I heard that something happened, quick Google, and the first story that came up was the Vogue piece, and the second story that came up was Serena winning a match for the mm. first time in ages. Uh, and the post-match press conference had been like, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I feel good, but that light is getting brighter. And what does yeah. that light signify? Well, I'm not really sure. I want to. And then, like, four hours later, the piece gets published by Vogue, which says the light at the end of the tunnel mm. is the end of my career. But I, it was a very long piece. Um, I got bored after the first three or four 
How many words first, was it? First page, I don't know. I didn't. 6,000. 6,000 words. Six okay, thousand fair words. enough. So, you know, it's uh, very self-indulgent and that's fair enough, I suppose. She's the greatest athlete. Uh, she's one of the greatest athletes of all time. And so, that's fair enough. Um, I, the main thing that I got from it was that she wants to start a family and that yeah. her, her daughter has essentially guilted it into her because her daughter keeps saying that she wants to be a big sister. When she grows up, she wants to be a big sister and she's listening to this going, oh, I better sort that out because like, you know. But Serena's rich. She can have a baby anytime. I'm surprised that uh, her daughter didn't turn around to her and was like, when I grow up, I want mom to have blown Margaret Court's record out of the bloody water. Um, but uh, clearly doesn't have the uh, competitive edge. Bit of guilt when the kid realises at like 2022, 20, my mom was second. I wonder what happened there. What, what, what prevented It's your fault, Olympia. Getting exactly. Exactly. It's like, you, you guilted me into it because you, you want a, a little sister. And I bet you, in the end, we'll see if they all get on, you know? Mm. I mean, sometimes siblings don't get on. The, um, the famously the um, coming out of retirement um, possibility would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? Just mm. like it, it would be like unprecedented because it's like coming out of retirement at like the age of forty. She's forty-one at the end of September. Yeah, it would be it would be remarkable. Like, but like I'm, I'm even trying to think of any sort of parallel to that, and, and it would be unprecedented. Like Jordan yeah. finished his comeback at the age of forty. Yeah, 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 Tom Brady. Retire um, and then come back. Yeah, it's Tom Brady. Yeah. And speaking of American greats, uh, one at the age of forty, I guess. the lads discussed the last night in the news round. If you were to do an American Mount Rushmore, Serena gets on it plus three. Does Serena get on it? Serena, Tiger, Jordan, Brady. You can name another four, and then another four. It's a thing. It's American. You know what I mean? Big. Like Jesse Owens, really. Yeah, well, you know. Know. but like Jesse Owens versus Hitler. The thing about it's like, <laughs> more important than. The number of championship rings you have. Is that uh, what you're saying? Yeah, a little bit. You know, the thing about Serena is that trying to justify her career Jackie in statistics Robinson. is like, she reached world number Muhammad one. Ali. Oh, I forgot right. about him. Actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Make she it. reached world number one. But that's not even, that, that's barely, you can even barely even mention that in her career. Usually that's the pinnacle of someone's career is where they got to world number one. But that's kind of besides the point for her. Like 23 Grand Slam titles and... Seven, like 73 single titles in total 14 Grand Slam doubles she never lost a Grand Slam double final 4 Olympic gold medals 319 weeks at world number 1 but it's way down the list highest earning female athlete ever um, she won like I think it was a number a number of um, Grand Slam titles after the age of 30 what was the number again 10 she won 10 Grand Slam titles at the age of 30 that's remarkable. Like she was written after off after the age of thirty. Yeah, right. she was written off a number of times throughout her career in terms of oh she's lost a bit of her um, focus on the sport and she's because she's transcending the sport. I mean she's first name territory, and as soon as people accused her of that, she'd come back with the bang. I think it was two thousand and seven Australian Open. She that's exactly what she was accused of. But you know, as focused as you once were, and then she ended up obliterating Maria Sharapova in the final. First time she played Sharapova, two thousand and four Wimbledon final, which Sharapova won. She beat her in 20 times after that, Serena. So she took that personally. That was yeah. like the Michael Jordan last dance. I took that personally. Uh, look, I think um, I, the documentary better that I remember seeing was grand, not great. I haven't seen the movie. Is the movie good? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Um, Zero for three. I've, yeah. uh, I've seen the Oscar ceremony, but uh, yeah. I haven't seen the movie. And Sorry, the Oscar ceremony does make me want to watch the movie. Oh, I, yeah, I, like, it was good hype. It was like, you know... Um, so I, I suspect there will be a good documentary made. The trouble is that all these documentaries are all now made with their participation. And so Serena's legacy is complicated. We should we should talk about this. Like, there's an incident. Drug testers arrive at her house and she's in the panic room. Like, you know, I mean, OK, that's a, an interesting response. Um, she feared for her life, apparently. That's the, the um, 
stories you thought people were breaking in. And so I guess if you fear for your life and the repercussions of somebody breaking into your house, you go to your panic room. It's a, it's a you know, that's a reaction for sure. Uh, so that, that complicates the legacy in, in many respects. And then there's also the relationship with tennis authorities. Frankly, I don't care about that. Like, giving out to lines people, whatever, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Most of these tennis players have, at some stage or other, done stuff that isn't great. Like, that stuff I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about. Yeah, like the, there was also the um, the hacking of the uh, WADA system that kind of reveals more therapeutic use exemptions than we had been known. That had been known beforehand, and I know she wasn't the only one. I think Venus was involved in that. I think Federer, uh, uh, that it had been brought up around him, and Petra Kvitova was the, the other player around that time in, in 2016 when that information came out. So it is definitely complicated, and those questions have, have existed for, for quite some time. But I kind of agree with you as well. I think maybe in the moment we've we had conversations around the uh, the on course, um, I guess uh, battles with line judges or whatever, and it's, kind of, and it's kind of felt yeah, it's kind of felt very important. But now at, the, at this juncture, it kind of feels like what were what were we even chatting about really? Oh well, I mean, no, that was extraordinary. The 2018 US Open final. Just remind us what happened. I can't remember. That was when Osaka, right? Yeah, that was against Naomi Osaka in her first Grand Slam final, and then uh, Serena because of on-court coaching, which he refused to acknowledge was happening. And then afterwards, her coach openly admitted, oh yeah, he was coaching her. And in the meantime, Serena accused the, uh, accused the umpire, Carlos Ramos, of being a thief and a sexist and uh, saying that this wouldn't happen if I, if I wasn't a woman. And um, also she said, you'll never umpire in a court of mine again. You know, with full on ego. I don't think they ever were aligned again, no. Because right. I don't think they were allowed. Because that was such a... That was such a massive story that did she lose went that way final? beyond that final. Yeah, she lost that final, and that's the whole story. With that's what's so fascinating about Serena. Look, twenty-three Grand Slams. The twenty-third that she won was the twenty-seventeen Australian Open against her sister Venus when she was eight weeks pregnant. That's absolutely remarkable. Then she comes back. She has huge complications actually in her pregnancy. Gets quite ill. Has postnatal depression as well that she suffers from. Does return to the sport and quite remarkably reaches four more Grand Slam finals, but loses all four. Two Wimbledons in a row and two US, US Opens in a row. So Angelique Herbert, Wimbledon 2018 last. And the thing is that she kind of dominated her way en route to those four finals and then got dominated in those four finals, which she has since really admitted is because of that Margaret Court record, which she just cannot get to and will not get to. And we've discussed here the last 12 to 18 months when we're in here previewing Grand Slams you always bring it up. Yeah, Serena, I, I, is she going to do it? I want her is to she do it. Do it? You know, I'd, I'd love Margaret Court to be knocked off her effing perch. Yeah, That's and like, I mean, well, what I found interesting was in Serena's essay on Vogue is that she referenced Margaret Court as her. It's like, I don't think about her. Now, you know, I'm sure she would have put the time aside to mention her by her full name and give her the credit she deserved if she thought highly of Court. And I don't think she does. And maybe that was the big motivation for her to surpass but she also mentioned Steffi Graf's record years ago when she was on about 16 or 17 slams and Graf's was 22 and she immediately said that's, that's the target I want to hit and surpass and there was no hesitation there that's what she wanted to do she was, she was a goal setting player just yeah. like Novak Djokovic is so she feels well not alone did I not win the 24th and get by court she w- should have won 30 plus titles she said 30 plus Grand Slams so the, the, her legacy is you know unparalleled we'll never see the likes of her again our own Sue Murphy texted yesterday to me straight away when the Vogue article was released and said we'll never see the likes of her again and that cannot be argued and then at the same time she's never going to be at that top because she lost those four finals after coming back but she had a baby 
And she came back because she got the four Grand Slam finals, which is a remarkable achievement. It's incredible. Yeah, look, one of the most remarkable athletes of, of her era. The whole point about it is never seeing stuff again. Like, we're always prisoners of the moment. Oh, we'll never see this again. We'll never well, see okay, that again. And then, yeah. you know, you actually... Like, I, I think it's fair to say for Serena, though, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, of course, who, yeah. who would have thought after Federer, it's like, oh, no one's ever going to be as good as him. And then along comes immediately two others who are just as good. Yeah, I mean, it, in terms of Serena, it's not just her dominance on court, I guess, it's what she represented off court. I mean, can you imagine, like, you know, the racism that her and Venus had to put up with at the top? I mean, she's a. It was Indian Wells, was it? Was yeah, Indian Wells 2001, where there were, she didn't play there until 2015. You know, like, she had, to, she had to endure so much, like, and then coming from the background that they, like, came from Compton, which, can, like, it's easy to underestimate, like, they didn't come from a tennis background, like, they didn't have privilege in their family and lots of players make it that way like Diego Schwartzman and, the, and Dominic Team, two at the top of my head had a tough background like they had to overcome obstacles to make it in tennis but most tennis players you know it's provided for them they are set up to make it as tennis players yeah, and these two most, certainly weren't and also Venus blazed the trail like you know Venus was the one really who set it up for her it's true it's true and I, like definitely early early doors I felt like Venus was going to have the, the um, 2000-2001 the Venus if you look at a record yeah. incredible yeah yeah. Uh, all right. So, all in all, you love Serena. I didn't for a long time because a bit like Federer in two thousands, she was too dominant. It was no fun. Didn't like her winning all the time. But definitely the last few years, certainly since she's come back from giving birth, you can't help but love her. And then like just her sheer desire and unfiltered want to win that twenty fourth is infectious. And I really thought Wimbledon this year, not that she's going to win it, but just to get to that second week would have been amazing. Uh, like Federer did the year before, but then to lose to Harmony Tan in that first round in what was a very close contest, probably one of the matches of the tournament, that was heartbreaking. And then it felt when she lost that match, I don't know if I'll see her again, but I didn't think, it seemed the day so soon afterwards that she would actually write an article acknowledging the fact that she's about to retire. It did feel, like that, it did feel like that was the end, I have to say, watching that match. It was like, uh, she just couldn't do it anymore. She was like right there, it, she, she had the winning of that match and a relatively straightforward passage afterwards to, you know, be a contender. Yeah. But she just couldn't get over the line. The last bit of oomph had gone. The the fatigue was setting in. She looked spent. But here's another way that she's amazing. 40 years old. That was her first singles match in exactly a year. The previous one was the first round Wimbledon, 2021. And she nearly beat a player in Harmony. Tan OK was playing her first Wimbledon but Tan got well into that tournament and was beating other players afterwards oh, who yeah, were in right. their peak. Like, that's how brilliant Serena is. And also with Serena too, in just terms of her game, she's associated with raw power, but she actually had brilliant finesse. And she used to get into the heads of players and she'd actually just mentally beat a player and she had an amazing serve as well. That was her big thing. Her consistency and her variety in serving. Like, it's probably something that's overlooked about Serena is that we're very stats-heavy talking about Serena because you can't avoid all these amazing numbers associated with her career. And nobody ever had the upper hand in her too. Her great rivals like Martina Hingis, Jennifer Capriati, Justine Ellen they all have losing records against Serena. Nobody surpassed her. Venus Williams has a losing record against her. But it's actually her game itself uh, is worth analysing. And that's probably another piece for another day is actually what made her so great if you take away Serena the brand and the transcendental figure. 
what actually made her a brilliant tennis player. And that itself is, I think, a real source of interest. And hopefully we'll get to appreciate that more when she retires and we get to look back on her career. All right, that's uh, Colm's thoughts on Serena this morning. We'd love to hear yours. The hashtag is OTBAM. You can uh, tweet us at OffTheBallAM, 7.45 this morning here. Uh, we're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Off the Ball is going back to Vicker Street. It's our first Vicker Street Roadshow uh, in a long time. It's in association with Cadbury FC. Massive one coming your way. It's today week. Michael Owen, Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney will be our guests. It's essentially a fundraiser for grassroots women's football. There should be some great stories tonight. Michael Owen is a very, very good storyteller and uh, so is Ian Wright. And it's also obviously going to be a celebration of where the women's game has gone and where it's going to. Um, We're not jinxing anything, but the World Cup next year is opening up for Ireland and the opportunity to get there. Things are definitely looking rosy. So it's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are very limited. Don't delay. Go to otbsports.com forward slash events and a reminder that ticket proceeds will be towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. We're going to buy a lot of kits with the, with the proceeds. So the more people who go, the more kit we get to buy. T's and C's apply. We'll see you on the night. Up next, we're live in studio with the 42's Gavin Cooney reacting to Tamara Grover's tremendous European football result last night. First, here's Shane, Shane Walsh talking exclusively to Off The Ball about his desire to play for Kilmico Croaks. Watch this. It's all kind of blown up, Shane, in the last... 10 days, 2 weeks, hasn't it? Uh, Did it? Yeah. <laughs> you, f- you found Vincent's all right today? You got here? You found it okay? Yeah, no, in fairness, they're, they're, they're welcome now. There were a lot of uh, papers been thrown out in front of me, but I don't know what there was on them. <laughs> yeah. Talk us through, what happened after the All-Ireland final? Is this something, the, the transfer from Kilcarran, Clamburn, to Kilmacook Croaks? Has this been in the pipeline for a while? Has it just come up? What's, what's going on? Uh, no, yeah, look, I suppose... Obviously, I was saying like it's circumstantial, I suppose, like the fact that probably I, I'm not 21 years of age anymore and kind of flying around the place, um, you know, that, that was probably a big part for me, you know, moving up to Dublin, going back to college and that, and, you know, it was, it was probably, it didn't really stem until probably maybe February, March time, I, I started to pick up a couple of niggles around my hips and my back and, you know, it just, it was starting to take the enjoyment out of it and, you know, I was coming up from training and sometimes I wasn't able to train and it was nothing worse than driving two and a half hours down the road and then you're tight, you're not able to train and you're literally getting physio and going back up again and, you know, for me, anyone that knows me knows I love playing football and, like, that's what it's all about for me. I want to play football for as long as I can and, as I said, it might have taken 21 years for Galway to get to an iron final but I, I can't, I mightn't be able to go another 21 years playing football but I love the idea of it. Like, that's, that's for me what it is and, look, this, for me, is a personal decision I'm hoping to prolongs my career shortening the, the travel distance for the period I'm up in Dublin but as I said like I'll be back down to Clifford Club in the future yeah the, like so it's it, put the club in the context for us it's a, it's a small enough club in Galway playing intermediate at the minute yeah, we are flagging outside. Uh, like we're um, telling Brindis outside that like we're we're probably known for our ladies now at the moment. Like yeah. our ladies, all our champions. So, um, but yeah, look, we're we're a small club and like John numbers out in the rural areas are, are dwindling as well. So it is tough going. Like and I said, like but I suppose it's the it's the travelling. I suppose that it, no one kind of sees. Like everyone sees you out playing. Like Joe, you don't really see the work that goes in behind. And like there's so much work that goes in when you're trying to train and prepare. Like and commitment's probably a big thing for me. That Joe, when you're there you have to be there like and you kind of the people saying oh train here there and everywhere like but for me like when you're part of something you're there all the time like and just for me I know I wouldn't join I just wouldn't enjoy it if I'm getting injured and not playing what good am I to anyone and the only person that's probably feeling sorry for themselves is me like you know because you're not you're injured you're not able to play something you love doing something you dreamed about doing since you were you know since I was born basically like so mm. so 
it's a process, a transfer in, in Gaelic football. It can be protracted sometimes, but it's in Crow Park at the minute. Uh, you put the request in, and, and that's kind of where it is at. Is that is that is that where it's at? Yeah, that's so that's too late that, for, yeah. for Vincent to throw their hat in, is it? <laughs> I'm just though, but uh, no, I w- I'm not great in the technical side. So uh, yeah, no, look, there's a process going on at the moment, and. I suppose, yeah, that's, that's where it's at. Best luck. All right, that's uh, Shane Walsh at uh, our roadshow at Vincent's the other night. Um, himself and Sean O'Shea had a kicking competition. Ruined by the wind, I was reliably informed, as Tommy Rooney was pinging the ball over and kind of showing off Glenn Hoddle style to the two lads. This is how you do it, lads. I've also never seen like an OTB presenter show up to a roadshow in full kit. Short, like, the shortest <laughs> of short shorts. It's like uh, a professional broadcaster has actually just gone John Terry on the whole situation. Yeah. Uh, Tommy's on holidays this week so he won't have the right of reply until he comes back but we'll give him one as soon as he wants to come on and do it Gavin Cooney is with us Gavin good morning how are you? Good morning all good yeah I will say one thing about that I went up to that and um, we were like uh, right at the side of the pitch when they were taking the, the free kicks and I had this kind of overwhelming sensation of deja vu and the deja vu was I'd been down in Davy Russell's the previous week looking at racehorses and two year olds who were like just becoming and I was like these guys are like racehorses they were so sinewy and uh, I mean I, I realise this sounds a little bit you know whatever I'm going to stop now but <laughs> it was unbelievably impressive is, is where I will go with that Okay but you, then you weren't struck with the, the feeling that I could kick these. I was I not struck with that feeling. Okay. I was like, there's something kind of at a, a, you know, at another level than, and they're not supposed to be because they're GA players. They're like, they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be the same as us. They, they all get up and go to work in the morning. But these lads are like, <laughs> you know, that's the next level. Anyway. They should like, they should just have like an ordinary man stand beside them at the start of every game just for television purposes. They really like, should. Like, is, we should volunteer for that. Yeah. But isn't there a story of like, yourself. Of Sean O'Shea, didn't Sean O'Shea, oh, maybe this is completely wrong, but took like a year off. Oh, he told Owen. To find, is, like, yeah. to find some kind of serenity slash his, this is his story. <laughs> this is literally, he broke this story. Sorry, Didn't Owen. realise he broke oh. the story and then everybody afterwards <laughs> is, <laughs> like, has basically claimed credit for it. Yeah, Tommy clipped it and put it up and was like, there was this really good story that Sean O'Shea told and I was like, you know what? He did tell me a good story. Yeah, he it became a professional uh, that's why we call taker. him Scoop Sheehan <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, even if I don't know if, if you were it. from North Macedonia you'd be Scoop hey. hey what a segue that is excellent segue Rovers are home this was a big this was there have been two subplots the TV mm. coverage and the travel mm. uh, bizarrely like as opposed to the football itself which has been sensational so yeah. we, let's do the subplots first uh, let's bury the lead again <laughs> in, in keeping with the theme of the show um the subplots were that uh, the travel had somehow... The Rovers were pissed off about it. Mm. Scoopy were pissed off about it. And in the end, all's well that ends well. Yeah, I mean, Shamrock Rovers had to fly out and were initially scheduled to come home via Shannon Airport. We we heard all about the Scoopy uh, statement uh, last week. Uh, Stephen Bradley held his counsel until after this game, but he went into the, the Zoom press conference certainly with something to say about the frustration about trying to get charter flights home. You have to get charter flights to these games. From third qualifying round on, you have to go via charter under UEFA rules. So he was frustrated that, for some reason, the Irish clubs couldn't get slots via Dublin. Whereas, um, I think he was less frustrated by that than the fact that uh, Ludogorets could fly in and out of Dublin and CSK Sofia could fly in and out of Dublin um, uh, for their game against Pats. But as it turns out, that tweet is by Mark Lynch, who's the, who's the media officer at Shamrock Rovers. Uh, they flew back via Shannon and it was too foggy to land. Uh, so uh, Stephen Bradley had manifested uh, sufficient, uh, sufficiently in our press conference to land in Dublin around five or six this morning. So I, You'll say all, all's well that ends well, but the problem is they now have to get uh, to Budapest next week. 
and they have to fly via charter. And again, everything is booked last minute. Like I mean, the, the like these games. You, I mean, it is a bit of a logistical nightmare as it is because you only learn your opponent. Well, okay, rovers have what eight days notice this time. Sometimes you only have five or six. Um, but uh, yeah, they'll have to uh, they'll have to find their way to Budapest. Hopefully, by Dublin. Maybe their owner can stick on a plane for them. You know, maybe I mean this stage is probably worth it. <laughs> I mean, maybe I mean I did like there was one of the, one of the comments on my piece was just like could they not just you know get someone to fly them out of Baldoil or something? Um, but uh, yeah, well, maybe look, maybe there will be, but it, it's a strange like it's just been completely chaotic. I mean, Pat's haven't. I mean, Pat's had probably the biggest nightmare obviously to fly via knock uh, to uh, to Sofia, and then we're stranded there for two days, like, <laughs> and which led to the cancel. Well. The non-playing, should we say, because there's question marks over that over the Shelburne game, which is a nightmare for Shelburne as well. So it's been it's been so disruptive. It's been, you know, football is interesting in the sense that it's a, it's a window into all kinds of worlds. And this summer has been world window into the world of, of Dublin Airport. Travel chaos is, is uh, general all over the world at the moment. Let's talk about the football. It's a massive, imp- important moment for Rovers and for Bradley to be able to get to this point. Hmm. Nothing's done that they haven't done before just yet. And Ferenc Varistan in the way um, from a place in the Europa League. Uh, so maybe can you quantify where this stands in, in terms of the context of other previous results? Is, is this as good as we've seen in the last decade? I don't think so. I think there's more in that Rovers team. I think that they're, they haven't, Ludogratz aside, they haven't really faced top quality. They've, they've been, still been good teams and that's not to take away from Rovers' achievements. I think there's more in Rovers, to be honest. They were really fairly comfortable. Like, there were a few nervy moments across the two legs against Scoopy, but they were pretty commanding and they did so without, you know, Roberto Lopez is injured, Jack Byrne has hardly kicked a ball, Mandarell was sold at the, at the start of this run. So I think there's more in them. Um, I think we've seen more impressive results, one-off results. I think Pats probably have had the results result of the of the summer so far, but there's just more to come from Rovers. They're now, well, they have achieved something that they hadn't achieved before in the sense they're now guaranteed the Conference League group stages and they've effective free hit against Ferenc Varis to get into the Europa League and it's real you could call it vindication for Stephen Bradley and everyone at Rovers who backed him I mean he took over in 2016 he was initially on a um, an interim basis and, and he presented to the board I think with Stephen McPhail this is the direction we need to go in um, and the board just turned around and said okay go and do it we'll, we'll back you and they did back him like there were rocky moments particularly at the start they were heavily beaten by Dundalk and there was um, jeers and doubt among the crowd but they stuck with him and they got close they obviously won the league and they kind of dominated domestically and made the most of Dundalk's collapse and got close last year and it's interesting Bradley used the phrase let themselves down against Flora Tallinn in the Conference League playoff last year they just didn't really perform away from home and I know that you know Bradley has said that um, externally people were guilty of underrating Flora Tallinn but Rovers didn't hit their levels in that game and they were way too open so that was uh, they've, they've been learning I think they've learned from the mistakes of the past like they, were a lot, they were a lot more solid um, against Scoopy last night and uh, yeah one one significant achievement, but they're uh, they're not going to stop at the Conference League. The progress for Irish football isn't going to come from one golden generation who all decide to stick together and play for a League of Ireland team and take them into the Champions League group stages. It's going to come in slow, steady increments where one year you, you get beaten by Florida Tallinn and then the next year you qualify for the uh, group stages. And I don't know, maybe... Maybe they can dream about qualifying from those group stages, but it's unlikely straight off the bat that that's going to happen, that there is a massive learning curve, a steep difference between European football and, and all the travel bullshit that goes with it. Mm. Um, so this is progress. 
Is oh. it, it comes slowly and hard won and it's not very glamorous a lot of time. Absolutely. And look, I mean, to get it, Rovers have had to, you know, build one of the best squads I think you've ever seen in the League of Ireland. Like, I mean, that's a, they have an embarrassment of riches, riches domestically. Their average age is over 30, which is rare in the League of Ireland. I think I mean, the average age of the league is something like 24. So they're far more experienced. The squad is built for Europe and they've needed that depth because they've missed Lopez, they've missed Byrne, they've sold Mandreo, Chris McCann missed last night. Um, but they need that depth and now they've achieved it. Um, I, I do think like the base, and I think it'll become Rovers' like, minimum expectation of themselves in the next couple of years that if you win the league in Ireland, get a place in the conference group stages. Because if you win the first round of the Champions League, through very complex system the UEFA have set up you get all these second chances you know you drop out of the Champions League into the Europa League and then you, you drop out of that into the Conference League and um, so it's, it's well set up so I do think that this should be a minimum expectation of the Irish champions to achieve what Rovers have done that's not obviously not take away from what they have done it's always hard, hardest to be the first in that regard but I think that that would certainly be the minimum expectation going forward that Rovers have of themselves and, and this is the incentive isn't it for a manager like Stephen Bradley to you know, not take an offer in League One or for mm. players to not take an offer in League One. This is just on a plane that's completely different to what you can get at, at a similar level football-wise in England, this, these European nights. And like, unfortunately or fortunately, this is what the entire season is going to be defined by when it comes to attracting talent and, and trying to persuade some of your younger talent to actually stay at the club. Yeah, well, I mean, the previous managers who have led Irish teams to group stages, Michael O'Neill and Stephen Kenny, both went on to manage internationally. Mm. I mean, Stephen Bradley should definitely have those have, have those ambitions down the line. He's only, he's only 37. Like, he's very, very young. And, like, he's made mistakes, absolutely. I mean, maybe they were too open in Florida Allen last year. Um, but he has, he has learned, I think. I mean, you can see that they've learned from previous mistakes and they've developed as a result. And, you know, it, it feels like... Well, there's a, if you, when you tell the story of Bradley Rovers, there'll be a couple of almost eureka moments. One will be picking Gavin Bazunu uh, as a 16-year-old to save that penalty against Cork. Another was going to the three of the back system, which I, which they did after a European game in 2019. It might have been Brand, but I'm just doing that off the top of my head, so I'm not so sure. But that's been huge for them because that's been given that's given them a very um, obvious identity, and it, it's made recruitment much easier because now they're recruiting players with specific with a specific place in the team in mind. I mean, this is like all the best teams now have a very clear identity, and when they recruit players, they know exactly what positions they want, what types of players they want, and it's a very defined ask of them. It's why Manchester United have been such a basket case as opposed to say Man City and Liverpool. They know what they're recruiting for, whereas Man United don't. Rovers do as well. I mean, they've recruited really well. Um, other clubs in Ireland will say, well, it's easy to recruit well when you've their budget compared to everyone else. But, you know, I mean, Dundalk had a bigger budget than Rovers last year and you know, blew up, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that changed the three of the back. That came in 2019 after a European game. I think that was, that was significant on this road to the Conference League. I, I, people are going to be very excited about this question about uh, coefficients and all that, but like, what is the possible upshot of them going into the Conference League rather than the Europa League? Obviously, with an easier group and potential for qualifying from a group, does, does that have long-term implications in a positive sense for, for next season for Irish clubs? Well, I mean, the higher you get a coefficient, the better, the better you'd be rated. I mean, like yeah. the, champions, the champions' path now is such that this effective seeding. So, I mean, it, there's one of the... I think one of the good things that UEFA have introduced in the last few years is A, the Conference League and B, the Champions path by which the champions are kept, champions of all the national leagues are kept in separate uh, separate brackets and as a result it's easier to qualify you know, it's easier to qualify for things like the group stages. Um, so a, a rising tide will lift all boats, so the higher the coefficient means the better, the more likely that the Irish sides will get slightly uh, better draws down the line and that's that should be the aim, you know, I mean I, I was among the people who kind of 
acted with reacted with a level of derision to the FEI's strategic plan saying we want to be in the top 30 uh, coefficient by 2025 I think it is which seems kind of crazy because there, there are 40 at the time and it's hard to it's hard to break it's hard to break through that um, through that glass ceiling as it were um, I don't think they'll get there but in fairness they're making more progress than I thought I mean I think it's up to 38 now and with uh, if Pass can get through they have a good chance of maybe climbing to, to 37, 36 which having been at 42 only last year maybe the year before would be would be great progress Um Frank Farris, we're calling it a free hit. We're saying that we would expect the technically superior Eastern European team mm. to, you know, win three 0 over the two legs. That's what would have happened in the in the eighties and nineties. What's the what chance do they have? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I haven't really got a chance to take a good look at Ferenc Farish yet. Um, they'll definitely be underdogs. I think they'll find it more difficult. One of the advantages Rovers have had, like all the Irish sides so far, is the fact that they've been well battle-hardened going into these uh, ties against sides that haven't started the domestic league, like Scoopy. Ludogorets are only a couple of games in. Uh, I'm not sure about the Hibernians. They're kind of no good anyway, but... Uh, I mean, they would definitely be underdogs against Ferenc Varas. I mean, my expectation would be that they would go out and go into the Conference League. But, um, you know, they're due... I mean, what Rovers have done so far, they've they've been confident and pretty dominant in doing so. They're due a, they're due a bit of a surprise. So maybe, maybe Ferenc Varas. Um, Ferenc Varas have played one game in the league so far this season. So there's still a window here for us to jimmy through and go... Um, I presume that game's going to be on TV, right? You'd have to, you'd have to hope so. You'd have to. Hope I mean, so. I mean, the, the line is that like RT will follow the champions in the Premier competition, being the Champions League, and then after they go out, then they'll have a look around for what else for what else is on. Um, Pass against CSKA, Sophie is on Thursday. That, that was the line this week. I'm not sure. Was it? Do we all know that that was the line previously? Has that been? Well, I mean, been, and why, why is it? Why are we just like, oh, that's grand. Why? What's the? Why does that like? Yeah, I mean, so, I was unaware of the Premier Competition bit. Maybe I was wrong to have uh, misinterpreted that from that being the well expanded policy last year. But that is certainly the policy that that is this year. It, I, I, I sense I, some skepticism. I, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about this. Like. Um, uh, we keep getting the the ratings figures. It's all about the ratings. It's like it's not a. It it really isn't about ratings when you're when you're taking taxpayers' money. The other thing is, oh, Virgin aren't doing any of this. Virgin don't get paid by the government mm. to be our national broadcaster. Virgin have to make money from advertising, which RT also do. Uh, the fact that they don't collect the license fee or or haven't managed to convince everybody that we should have a better system for collecting the license fee is on RTE, I would argue. On post do a bad job of it. Uh, the ads that threaten you don't seem to convince people that they need to pay. It doesn't it ha- That thing doesn't seem to work. But they still get loads of money from the taxpayer to cover sport, and they funnel a load of that money to rugby, and they funnel a load of that money to GA, and they don't funnel as much of that money to the FAI for whatever reason. Mm. Like I, I would say they pay way more money in rights fees for rugby and for uh, GA than they do for soccer. I could be wrong about that. Publish the figures and we'll find out, right? Yeah. But more than likely, they're paying more for uh, the GA rights and the rugby rights for the Six Nations and for the uh, URC than they are for football. So that's them giving money to the sports. That's the government giving RTE money who then distribute the money as they yeah. see fit. And then they don't cover the, the biggest game, the biggest sporting event in Ireland this week after the Ireland uh, final last weekend was the match last night. Is there any debate about that? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's an, it's an outstanding achievement by Rovers. The promise is much more. But uh, nobody knows an, about it. But nobody knows about it. There was a slight Streisand effect in the sense that there were so many people talking about the lack of coverage that there were, Rovers did say we got a record number of LOI TV streams. Good night like, for LOI TV. I was it was a say, good yeah. night for it yeah. because, and like, I mean, they had to jump through hoops to 
but I'm hey. just to get it. Um, I mean, we had the scene of like Justin Ferrisad's dad was ringing the Scoopy sporting director the morning of the game. Like, this is for one of the biggest games of the year. Is this game going to be an Albanian TV so we can stream it? Um, and ultimately, Rovers made another bid for the right for the rights to stream the game. Um, and late in the day, got it, and I think it has proved profitable on LOI TV, which is great. But that doesn't appeal to the casual viewer who doesn't really know a whole lot about LOI TV. It needs to be on regular TV. And the argument is always that, you know, the, the endless bloody argument is that broadcasters will argue in, you need investment and grow the league and make the stadiums look better and then it's a better broadcast par- uh, product. Whereas then people will argue, well, if you broadcast it, then that'll bring the investment. So I don't, look, I don't know where that endlessly circular argument ends. But the European game should be seen as separate of that. I mean, they've got a prestige of their own. Uh, they're a major commercial and marketing opportunity for the league and they should be all on TV, in my opinion. Um, I mean, obviously, RT get all of the criticism, really. I would be critical of the commercial broadcasters for not stepping in. Like, I mean, Virgin Media would show the group stages. I don't know why, why they can't really step up and show the qualifiers. Um, but then, you know, OK, RT have a public um, public interest remit. Um, but they obviously see that, they obviously feel they're showing enough. I mean, Declan McBennett, who's the head of RT Sport, was engaging pretty well with our League of Ireland fans on Twitter yesterday I have to say he was making the point that what is it 18 League of Ireland games plus cup games plus the European ties that have been shown so far there's more Irish football on than ever before is that not enough for you and no, actually, it's not, the answer it's, is no it's not, it's an, not, it's not enough. enough when the bar is so low and, and the thing is right when you compare that with the number of uh, club matches and GA matches that are going to be on it's just not the same mm. and it's clear that there is uh, more interest in showing GA and more interest in showing rugby than there is. What, why, why did we show the URC final between the two South African teams? I haven't seen the viewership figures for that game. I assume because contractually you have to. But like, so what? You know, yeah. stick it on news now. Yeah. Because they ended up moving the hurling quarterfinals for that game. Remember that weekend? But the argument will be that that game will get as many, if not more, viewers than the standard the league of Ireland game. Two South African teams. Those arguments that they moved. Uh, it was actually an argument from within the Sunday game on air that they uh, he had suggested that they had played a one o'clock quarter final because of the URC final. That was certainly the suggestion I got. It was from true. Though. That was that was the it was it was all moved. So I can understand. I, I assume. Look, I mean, I'm not privy to these conversations. I don't but know. you make your contracts. You sign those contracts knowing what's going to happen. And if you are interested in making the league a better product, actually, I also hold the FAI somewhat mm. accountable for this if, if you're going to give the international rights to a broadcaster make them do more you can See, have the, these if you do is, this and in this in fairness what is tricky for the FAI is that a lot of the international games are sold centrally through UEFA now so I mean it's, it's harder to say here or do you take the Nations League games but you have to show X number of League of Ireland games that's trickier because it's sold via, via UEFA so the FAI have kind of lost that leverage as it were I think they could definitely do things around like the URC demands you buy URC rights and you have to commit to 30 minutes build up before and however many re- minutes reaction afterwards that would definitely be um, that would definitely be worth bringing in from an FAI point of view just one thing that like obviously URT has seems to have some kind of commercial remit as well I'm kind of, I'd love some kind of clarity on like what that is versus public interest because what confuses me is that They'll show Champions League games on a Tuesday, is it a Tuesday night. So they'll show Liverpool or, I was going to say Man United, but not Man United anymore. Who's there? Chelsea or whoever. But then, like, I mean, that's that's obviously a commercial money spinner. There's no actually technical public interest in that, unless you can argue, maybe, like, public interest is Queeveen Kelleher, but it's not, basically. So, and, like, why not leave that to the commercial broadcaster and Virgin Media and then reallocate those resources into genuine public interest in 
screening and investing in Irish soccer. I'd love, I don't know, I've never, I've never really seen that argument teased out. There was a, a brilliant piece in The Examiner that um, uh, Paul Farrell from Virgin made the point that they, they did this remarkable deal, which was the first time ever kind of, you know, across the aisle, uh, the DUP and Sinn Féin coming together, Virgin and RTE joining together to get the Six Nations and keep it on free to air. And his argument was, as soon as that happened, RTE took the money they saved and then bought the URC rights with it instead of, like, doing something else with it. It's like, what? what? We just we just saved you a lot of money and now you're just competing against us for other rights mm. or, or whatever. It might have been the Champions League. I can't remember what it was, what, where they spent the money. But it seems remarkable. It seems remarkable that you can spend taxpayers' money on buying stuff that other people will spend for you because you want to, mm. as opposed to because it's for the good of the country. Yeah. Like, what's the point of this? It's just... I'd, obviously, I mean, Declan McBennett gave that interview to Johnny Ward and Dan McDonald on their podcast, LOI Central, last year. It's very good. Like, I listened back to it yesterday just because I, <laughs> I thought this was going to come up. Uh, and he was making the point that, like, the group head of sports should always be, you know, the t- like the moment that a uh, group head of sports says, allow something else to go somewhere else, based because they're commercial, etc. Um, that, sorry, I'm tying myself up in knots because I'm kind of tr- forgetting what he said. But basically, that they have to. They have to bid for these things. He was making the point around the Lions or um, oh, yeah. I think it was on this channel. Yeah. And then the RT bid for it as well. But he says there's a public interest in that and because of the Irish people involved and the group head of sport has but to be... But it was be, already free somewhere else. Has to be involved, yeah. So why, he, would, you, would, why say, would you waste your would resources? But, but you're al- it's already available to the audience. And what you're doing is you're splitting that audience as opposed to then taking that money and spending it on something else that the audience can't get. Mm. Like other sports that need help, like athletics or basketball or golf or whatever it is that like as the national broadcaster it's your you know supposed to be there's supposed to be a remit to help the uh i maybe maybe i'm wrong about that maybe maybe the only point of rte is to make money they're very bad at that because they've lost loads of money like uh over the last decade so i don't know it's um i disagree with that i think that mm. doesn't hold water it doesn't have any logic your point about the champions league when the champions league was on two nights on virgin then RT had all this extra money that they could have spent on other things. They could have invested that in the League of Ireland. If you look, for example, what TG Carr did with this, I mean, we're, we're labouring the point here, but TG Carr took the league, the, the, uh, the league Sunday. Those matches used to never be on TV. When mm. we were kids, do you ever remember watching a Gaelic football match, a league match on TV, apart from maybe the semi-finals and the final? They weren't on week, week on week. TG Carr came, put the league on, and everybody was like, league's really good. These are good matches. They turned it into something by showing it week in, week out, year in, year out. And then they started showing club matches. And then when when uh, um, Satanta started showing them on Saturday nights, and suddenly Saturday nights in the leagues became this really big thing. And, uh, and Dublin piggybacked off the back of that and the TV coverage to get big houses in Croke Park. Uh, and then RT came in and goes, oh, this is good now. We'll, we'll have this. Thanks very much. Mm. Like... That's not really how public service broadcasting is supposed to work. This, these other organisations had invested money and built it up. And uh, ideally, the money that was, is being spent on those could be spent on other stuff. Mm. Just to, I mean, Declan will make the point that he kind of pithily summed up his job with that interview with John, uh, Johnny and Dan said his job is to put the, put the best of Irish sports on television, you can you know you can interpret that in different ways, but there clearly must be a commercial ask. I mean, like they would presumably put on the national league because that's a way of putting good sport on RTE, which isn't just a sports broadcaster. We kind of sometimes lose sight of that in these debates, but put that on TV. Okay, you're shaking your head, so you're going to disagree with me. But uh, I mean, that'll get good ratings, you know. Whereas, I mean, you have to. 
it seems like you have to get good ratings to stay on RT in a prime time slot which I think is fair enough to be quite honest and maybe that's you. the whole point and you said it to it earlier on the, um, the Champions League will and the League of Ireland won't yeah like you're, that, the they're League not doing a great job of making money if you build it they will come no we can't build it we're going to put a game on once every three or four weeks you never know when it's going to be who are the presenters like what's the what's the architecture around it who are the players that we've built up and followed week in week out it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Mm. It, it's kind of a the, like a, the League of Ireland is kind of a non-entity because of I would argue the a, approach towards it isn't that this is consistent. The league is on every Saturday night for eight weeks. We know it's a, it's going to be on, and somebody else has already proven it. By the way, like Air and Satanta and TG Carr proved that that was something good. So look, I don't know. Maybe maybe TG Carr can save the league. I always thought they'd be a good partner for the League of Ireland. There's a kind of like slightly punky subversive element of both. I think that might be a that might be a good marriage then, right. right Mike up to League of Ireland referees and away you go on <laughs> I mean you're not showing that at 7.45 on a Friday oh. like that is well after the watch <laughs> yet, I'm afraid everybody's tuning in though yeah <laughs> Gavin good stuff thanks a million thanks very much 8.14 this morning ahead of our Cabri FC Roadshow on the 17th of August we're going to be deciding on the top 5 most influential Irish players in both the men's and the women's game a reminder the tickets for the show on Vicar Street are on sale now ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football check out otbsports.com forward slash events for T's and C's and more we'll see you on the night up next our resident South Africa rugby correspondent Stephen Kisby-Green will tell us why the box were so great against the All Blacks at the weekend first here's football writer Tony Evans speaking with Joe Malloy here on last night's show about why Liverpool fans shouldn't overreact to the 2 all draw against Fulham at the weekend you think of how many huge games this group have played in and played brilliantly in and suddenly they're at Fulham and they're better than Fulham damn it full of all this enthusiasm and energy that a newly promoted side does and it's just hard to muster those reserves again oh yeah I mean there is an element to that and you, you look at Thiago you know he's 31 now he's injury prone and you know it, it's it's going to be difficult seeing, get, seeing them get a full season out of him you know uh, Henderson is into his 30s and there's a little bit of age creeping in the midfield and the youngsters, at least not yet, haven't stepped up to the plate in that area. Mm. But I also think it's, you know, we've got to allow this group of players who've been absolutely fantastic. You know, we're talking about five years when they've been relentless. Klopp's mentality monsters. We've got to allow them a bad game or two every now and then. You know, our fan base, Liverpool fan base, is among the biggest bunch of bedwetters any Premier League group of supporters and you know and there's always hysteria well you know what it's early days and a draw of form mightn't be such a bad result come the end of the season I think um, I think it's this season of all seasons is going to be a very peculiar one with the break for the World Cup and a lot of players coming back from Qatar with tired I should imagine the second half of the season there's going to be a lot of injuries I would expect because the uh, the workload the players are given is relentless yeah. so anything could happen and oh, the one thing I've, I've learned in my my fairly long football watching career is not to judge a game by, a season by a game in August OTB AM. 17 minutes past 8 this morning you're very welcome back to OTB AM uh, loads of your comments rolling through um, Chris Cal says good to see Parrot scoring last night yeah opened the scoring for Preston first goal for Preston since he arrived um, it was in the EFL Cup so hopefully that's the start of many goals for him uh, it's a free hit against French Farris might as well go all out and throw everything at it you'd never know says JS2000 I th- that's not really Rover's approach is it I think um I think Rovers will fancy themselves over two legs. I know 
literally nobody I've spoken to so far has given them uh, a chance so much as everybody expects Ferenc Barras to win but it, it does seem that like I mean they're going to be thrown into kind of a similar category to Ludo Goretz and you could definitely make a case that certainly in half of that tie that they held up their end of the bargain and quality wise they weren't a million miles away even though it looked at times as if the tie was going to run away from them so like I mean they're, I think it's more than just a free hit they're obviously going to be uh, like they're obviously going to be hoping for Europa League group stages it's just amazing to have the safety net like, it'd be interesting as well to see kind of like what the um, the fan culture around these two games is going to be like I mean the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that they wear similar jerseys but the there is, as far as I know, like a, a connection between like Ferencváros and Panathinaikos, and a connection between Rovers and Panathinaikos in terms of their fan groups. And there's like a triumph for the clubs, I think, involving Rapid Vienna uh, when it comes to those Central European clubs, and um, obviously the, the Greek club and Panathinaikos. And um, what could this be the start of something beautiful between these uh, two clubs? There you go. Um, we'll obviously keep a close eye on that and uh, look forward to the announcement that the game is going to be on telly uh, what goes on mentioned about Serena is that she's also won 14 doubles Grand Slams titles with her sister says Eamon S ask Colin whether he favours Sancho or Serena I think it's fairly obvious it'd be Serena in that one even even no Colin's shaking his head there he's not sure his love is yet to be It's he's 50-50 he's um, he's a free lover what, what an easy lover <laughs> <laughs> 19 minutes past 8 this morning uh, Rick Dagger did I say that one I want to hear more miserable news about Man United we've got plenty of that to come because the season is long and um, you know there's still apparently the, the Man United players are sick of the circus around Cristiano Ronaldo and they're, they're now they've decided to come out and talk about that to leak those stories to the press which is obviously going to make the circus more so well done everybody involved in that circus right Stephen Kisby Green is ready to talk to us this morning about um, the new world order that has been established over the last few seasons which is that it is the Bucky's world and we're just pretending to live in it Stephen good morning to you how are you morning Jim morning how's it going I mean I really ever since we've had you on the, the mountaintop in South Africa I kind of expect you to appear you know like silhouetted against the whichever amazing landmark with you know uh, whatever trophy over your head uh, bellowing down your chest going yes we are the kings because that's, that's what's happening certainly our YouTube comments yesterday were full of the South African fans fans that we picked up during the Lions tour going why are we what, what were we not did we not just crush the All Blacks is that not what happened nothing to do with the All Blacks being crap we just crushed them I mean, crushed might be a bit of an overstatement. I think, um, like it, it was, I think the fifth, the fifth biggest um, scoreline that anyone's ever beaten the All Blacks by, which is impressive in and of itself. But it's only sixteen points. Like it's not a crushing. Like fifty-seven nil. That's a crushing. We South African fans are still hurting about that, and I don't think that um, I don't think any genuine South African fan thinks that that was a complete performance by the box. Like it was, it was a good win, definitely. But I, but but as we've been pointing out on on, on all both shows uh, this week, this is not a good All Black side. So beating them by sixteen points is the bare minimum we should be doing as as the Springboks are. We we were making the point on the show the other day. I think it was Mark Johan who wrote that they felt pity for the All Blacks uh, at some point in the game. So they actually pulled up. They thought, nah. Now I know the try. Uh, There's very very late try. So maybe the sixteen point is when they start pulling up. But certainly in and around there, they're like they start to, to feel sorry for their foe. Uh, feeling sorry might be one way of putting it. Um, I think it's more just a, a lack of South Africa's ability to put, like, to step on the throat. I, we, we've shown it in, in Wales. We've shown it uh, last year against Scotland as well. Um, I mean, we, we 
couldn't couldn't beat the couldn't beat England in Twickenham either. A great match. Like South Africa at the moment don't seem to be able to be that to, to be that ruthless side that takes their their chances when they're on, when they're on offer. Like um, maybe it was you might call it pity, but I just think it was just a little bit of inexecution, a little bit of and like the, the, the South Africans looked like a little bit shocked that it was so easy to get into the All Black 22 so that when they did get in the 22 they just didn't finish everything off like especially in the first 10 minutes there were three scoring opportunities of which two of them were nailed on almost Mapimpi any against any other side in the world Mapimpi up that touchline in the sixth minute would have been a guaranteed try um Geordie uh, Barrett makes the makes the tackle and Mapimpi knocks it on whilst trying to push it back to arm in any other against any against any other team with a reputation that isn't the All Blacks' reputation, Mapimbi wouldn't have um, tried that weird sort of on the floor offload. That wasn't really an offload; it was more like a, a placement. He, he would have just either a gone into touch and trusted the line out to steal, or b w- wouldn't have been able to, uh, or well, yeah, w- would have been able to keep his his feet in, in touch. So I think there's a bit of a mental barrier, particularly against the All Blacks, that it's not so much pity; it's more. Why are we beating them so much in these physical areas? In 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 these areas out wide, it's it was it was a it was an interesting sort of mentality, I think, from 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 the box. And yeah, that 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 Caleb Clark. Oh, sorry, it wasn't even a Caleb Clark. Try, it was a Shannon Frizzell. How the hell did he get back in the squad? Um, but that, that that try from that Caleb Clark run was more a falling asleep in the midfield defense as opposed to them actually earning that that that, that try. It was also telling to me that it happened when when South Africa were down to fourteen men. It was the only time they could actually break the line. Yeah, let's uh, let's not forget that South Africa were down to fourteen men for um, a portion of this game as well, and still won by sixteen points. Uh, LB, we don't know who he is, but he says box don't get the praises, but the Irish did. That's the difference. So we we got a lot of praise. We we basically softened them up for you. That, that was it. <laughs> what I really like though is that you've taken the attitude of patronising. The All Blacks at the start here. I mean, we weren't even that good. You're, you guys are you guys are useless. Like we we were going to be much better when it comes down to the big matches. Don't worry, All Blacks. My, my favorite my favorite thing in the post match press conference was Ian Foster said it was our most improved performance of the year. Now I don't know if he's counting the first test against against Ireland um, in in New Zealand because that was a decent, that was a very good All Black performance I think I, and I don't think the Irish performance was up to up to, up to much because they were still jet lagged or whatever what and disruptions etc cetera, etc cetera. and that was a now was an All Black side that had heavily that was heavily disrupted in, in the build up as well now if if you say that a 16 point defeat to a Springbok side that has just come off a dismal a dismal series against Wales and is n- Still struggling to to marry their their ever growing game plan to 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 actually being clinical is your most improved performance. That is that is a concern if uh, if, if you're an All Black fan. Like if if that's where if that's where you think improvement is, I'm I would be concerned as an All Black fan. Okay, stop talking about the All Blacks. Tell us about how great you are because that's what we're here for, right? Because <laughs> I I see you you've obviously been watching Owen talking about everybody in the power rankings and Steph Curry. And what you're doing here is like, oh, look, you know, there's other other things that we need to talk about. Tell us just about how amazing you are. Assert your dominance. Uh, no, what I did like about about Saturday was the as I alluded to the uh, sort of more more diverse nature of our, of the suffering game plan. Um, Joe, you you're one of them that that love to to mention. Oh, the box just kick all the time, and it's it's boring rugby. Big lads up front, you know. Big lads, yeah. Um, that that didn't happen on Saturday. Like the the, the obviously um, the, the the South Africans wanted to use their dominant 
their, their physical dominance because I mean they're big lads. They of course they want to use physical dominance or use your strength, but they didn't like especially in the, in the first thirty thirty five minutes. The first option was not to kick, and even when and even when they did kick, it was always attacking kicks. It was always contestable up in the air, chip kicks, a grubber out in in front to try and uh, break find the gap. It was there were kicks as a last resort as opposed to a first resort, and like Mapimpi and Kurtley Arantzer got the got the ball I think each about four times in the part in, in the first twenty five minutes. Now think back to the Lion series and you could probably count on one hand over the course of the three tests how many times the wingers got the ball um, that w- that weren't via kicks and the, obviously these, w- these weren't all via kicks and it was like what also impressed me was the way that Damien Willemser has grabbed his opportunity at 15 and he has become arguably S- South Africa's best backline player I mean obviously there's all the, everyone loves Lukanyo Am and I think he's probably the best center in the world at the moment and that you, you can quote me on that one, um, but Damien Willems uh, to me was particularly interesting. What is particularly interesting is the way that he countered the All Black kicking game. Like the All Blacks, as opposed to the South Africans who kicked for, for, um, if, if not for touch, at least for the sidelines, and tried tried to force the error there. The All Blacks always kick it down the middle, and they, they wanted to keep ball in play as much as they can. And Willems. Uh, the way he varied his response to that was very impressive to me. He he started off running the ball back uh, 20 meters, 50 meters, then passing out to Mapimpi or Aronso or, or even Pollard if he was inside him and sort of created that doubt in the All Blacks defense, which was very lethargic to get up and chase because they were expecting the kickback all, all, already. And then when Willemsen saw that the, the All Blacks actually started pressing up and was just leaving Barrett behind. That's when he started kicking back. And unfortunately, I mean, there was a one miss kick that wasn't really a miss kick. It was actually just brilliant, brilliant play by Barrett to keep the ball in. That led to that 40 meter break from Barrett from from his end goal line. But aside from that sort of brilliance, individual brilliance from from Barrett, there was always that look of uncertainty in the in, in the way that the All Blacks were receiving the. The, the kicks and that was purely because of the way that Willemser went about his business he created that doubt in the mind because he's got that step he's got that kick he's got that complete performance and it just it just showed how this this South African side has developed a game plan that's not quite there yet but it's 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 on track for 2023 who's behind that who's the, the brain power behind that um it could be a rusty influence but I would also um I think sticks um, the assistant coach Sticks is probably the one that's that's in charge of of, of the the counterattacking game. Um, I've I've just known him as Sticks. I can't, actually can't remember his name has gone off gone completely off the top of my head. But don't uh, worry, we'll look it up. Go on. Yeah, um, he's he, his he's the sort of brain power behind the the back line and sort of what, what they what they're trying to do. Obviously, Ninaba is the head coach and he's the one that make, makes the ultimate decision he's the one that comes up with a game plan of this is this is when we're going to kick this is when we're going to going to counterattack but um i think the, the the confidence to play the game that Willemsen wants to play is also comes from his com- his confidence at the stormers but then he brings that into a, a springbok environment where he's allowed to do that sort of stuff and 
um, uh, Sticks is probably like, we see we see him in all the press conferences as well. He, he's the one that's always good for a bit of banter. He's the one that that brings people up and gives give that environment into the team. And I think that that's where the confidence comes in. It's a, it's a it's a healthy environment to be in that you can make mistakes and you can try what you want to try. And it sort of stems from from the coaching staff. We just like rewind to last month, Stephen, because like we didn't really do much on South Africa. I suppose we were kind of obsessed with with Ireland in New Zealand at the time, but your own battles with Wales. Like I hadn't quite realised until like this week, just kind of the, the, the negative tone that maybe prevailed after the defeat to Wales. Like, this was a, a second string t- a team. I'm just seeing here, uh, Skalkberger Sr. said on Twitter, if you listen to the coach, the captain and the director of rugby of South Africa rugby, and you see how they perform, then you know somewhere there is either showboating or we are much weaker than we think we are. No structure, coaching or game skills. Sad to say, Rugby World Cup only a year away. And then Rassi Erasmus quote tweeted it being like, noted Skalk, thanks for your opinion. It counts a lot. Thumbs up. Ah. Uh, <laughs> which is, uh, oh, uh, I love Rassi on, on Twitter, I'm not going to lie. Uh, is, is, was Skalk talking out of turn there? Is, um, was he a little bit too harsh or coming into that last weekend, was there a sense that actually South Africa had something to prove. Uh, it, well, I don't think it was talking out of turn per se. I mean, it's kind of um, a strange one. Um, he, uh, he he was coming off the back of the sort of the fourteen changes, yeah, um, and and how dis- disconnected they were obviously were after making 14 changes now, any team even Leinster when they make 14 changes they're very discon- they can be very disconnected at times now obviously this is a team that only be- that had only been together for two weeks or three weeks prior and only probably only trained together for a week um, I wouldn't call it a B-side because there is no such thing as a like, you, you are a Springbok side you go out there and you represent the, 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 the South Africa with all your heart there is no such thing. It's like you wouldn't call a, a an Irish side a B side, for example. Or at least you shouldn't. It's 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 a Springbok side and should be treated as respect. Which is also why I found it a little bit disrespectful that the Welsh were saying that the South Africans were being disrespectful. If that makes any sense. But anyways, um, yes, it does. In your typical South African arrogance, era, it's like <laughs> you pick a B team and somebody notices and they call you out and you can't say that's a B team. They're still wearing our jerseys, but it is a B team. It is a B team. I mean. It's an inexperienced team, but those players were picked on form. Did they, they get, were, did they get it, picked? Did they get picked against? Did they get picked at the weekend? Did they? Are they, are they playing the no. All Blacks? Are they playing the All Blacks in no, the back games? Currently, <laughs> Aronson was Jaden Hendricks was Andre yeah. Pollard was yeah, but it's, it's, it was, all of them okay. were all, all of them were, in, were involved no, against. It was it was inexperienced and it was it was disjointed and it wasn't the the complete performance, but it's still lost by one point exactly the, here's the, the thing like, and the, the coaching ticket are delighted that they've put all those guys out there and they've had that match it's it, it, not quite the equivalent of us playing the New Zealand Marys but it's not a million miles away to be honest like uh, and it's, it's yeah, what, it, what you'll see in whatever the third test that we're playing is it Fiji we're playing is our third it's uh, uh, South Africa Australia and no it's, it's South Africa Fiji then Australia Fiji um, so in the Fiji game you're not going to see our full strength team you, you definitely won't um, yeah. but sorry to, to to go back to Owen's point Skulk a bit of a, a bit of an idiot really uh, like that's that's my question. I'm like, is he well, kind of like a complete outsider uh, uh, thinking like this? Because it does seem unusual to reactionary no, nonsense. Th- th- there was quite a bit of reactionary nonsense, if you want to put it that way, um, to that match, and it was right. I mean, it was justified in the way that they were playing, and they, they did look disjointed. They didn't look like they had a set plan. Um, 
th- there was justification to that, and I, I wouldn't say that they had something to prove. I mean, you you always have something to prove against the All Blacks, no matter how bad the how bad their form has been coming into it. It's like I mean, I said it for myself. I last week I didn't think South Africa was going to win, um, but like it, it was reactionary nonsense to the point where there was justifiable. Like they didn't see the plan that Ninaba and Rassi had put together. Now, obviously, Rassi isn't. Um, as directly involved with the Springboks as some people might think, he's uh, he's there and thereabouts. But he's also man. He's the r- director of rugby. He's probably um, in- hey. involved. <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe a word of it. You keep peddling that propaganda. Sure, believe what you want. He's, he's 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 not there in the coaching box to do on match days. He's only there for. Co- no, he's, he's, he's given the water still. No, no, he, no, he's been banned from 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 no, sideline. I see, they so changed the rules. Yeah, they, they did. Yeah, the rather. Uh, I, I saw somebody was giving out about. Um, apparently, Sia Khaleesi was calling the 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 water breaks, which was odd because it wasn't. It was Gardner because of World Rugby to um, go against Rusty Rasmus. But anyways, um, no, like it was. It, it's reactionary. It, it, there, there was justification to it, but it was short sighted and it, it didn't really gel with what Inunaba was 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 looking at. And of course, for African fans, they want victories. They want good, solid performances week in, week out. They 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 think that's the bare minimum they should get, and when a team goes out and, and plays as disjointedly as that against Wales, okay. there is a bit of a reaction. Always. And then and then obviously they pick their strongest team, and uh, now they're a much better squad, ready for the World Cup a year out. So uh, I've just looked at the odds; um, they're five to one to win the World Cup, which seems ridiculous at this stage. I would make them and France favourites. That has to be like, but they're they're not they're nowhere near favourites. France are five to two. New Zealand are three to one. England are five to one, and South Africa are five to one. I would have South Africa way ahead of England, and I have South Africa way ahead of New Zealand. What well, is it because of Ireland the fact eleven that to two? They've got a challenging quarter final, maybe. But so do New Zealand. They're like it doesn't make any sense for them to, to be. What, on that sorry, point. what side of the draw? They're, they're going to play the. They're going to play Ireland or France in the quarter final. Is that right? No, no, no they're going to play. New, they're going to play New Zealand or France. New Zealand or France. Okay. And Ireland are going to play New Zealand or France. But then the semi-final will be either probably Australia or England for one of them, and then the, so basically theoretically the Ireland and Ireland and South Africa can meet in the final, or Ireland and New Zealand can meet in the final, or Ireland and France or South Africa and France can meet in the final. It yeah. So basically, whoever plays in the quarterfinals. So give me give me South Africa's the, path to the final. Um, likely at this. Assume you beat it, Ireland in the group stages, right? Yeah. Assuming we beat Ireland in the group stages. Um, and assuming that that France lose to New Zealand, then South no, Africa let's assume will, France win. Okay, assuming France win, then then South Africa will play New Zealand, and then likely either Australia, Argentina, or England, depending on where they where they finish in the group. England semi final, yeah. And then so New Zealand, um, England, and then Ireland in the final. I easy, actually easy don't, I don't think that's how it will go. I think it'll be. The winner of they're playing basically the winner of uh, C versus the runner-up of D, which will be Japan or Argentina, who'll come second to England in the pool versus Wales or Australia, whoever tops that pool. So it's Wales, Australia, um, Wales or Australia, I suspect. It will be actually after they play the All Blacks. Okay, so England, sorry, All Blacks, Eng- All Blacks, Wales, and then Ireland in the final. That's a handy World Cup for you, isn't it? Very easy. They'll have already beaten Ireland in the pool stage as well by what sixty points. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think you're underselling Ireland there, but. I said to um, Mick on PM uh, last week that I guarantee, well, I guarantee, 
I'm fairly, fairly confident that Ireland will beat, oh, sorry, that South Africa will beat Ireland in November this year. But I've got absolutely no idea what, 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 how the teams are going to play in, in, in a year's time. Do you have, like, um, off the top of your head, like, what is, the, like, the power ranking in world rugby right now? Like, do the world rankings, I presume the world rankings don't represent it. I don't, I presume you don't think Ireland are the best team in the world right now. Well, the world rankings have never represented anything that actually makes any sense. Um, that's, that's offensive to our entire nation, Stephen. We, we, we live and die by the world rankings here. No, I think, um, realistically speaking, France are on top. And then South Africa, then Ireland, then... I... South Africa are on top. South Africa no. are on top. They're the best team in the world. They're the world champions. They've got a massive bonus of the confidence that comes from that. They've beaten the Lions. Like, France... Okay, Grant, you've, you've just been really good that one time. Great. But well, well, that one time, what one time are you referring to? The fact that they haven't lost a match in 10 games? Well, I, I mean, in, for one season, they've, they've reached a peak, which is really good for them. And it's, you know, I'm sure Fred Rugby feel, feels great about it. But South Africa are better than France at the moment because they've, they've done it on the world stage. What, what, what makes me say that France are above South Africa at the moment, like right this, right this minute, is form, current form. Now, obviously, by the end of the year, I might change my mind, and we might we might see something different. But South Africa have shown that they're not the finished product yet, and France has put out basically three completely different levels of teams and beaten everyone that's come against them. They played a, a, they played a B team in Australia last year and won the series. They played a C team in Japan of uh, this this year and won and won the series. Granted, it was dismal performances from them, but they still won. Um. And then they've 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 won a Grand Slam in Six Nations. Like they are they they are the the current form team. Okay, it's one one and one A, I would argue. And then after that, it's Ireland, England. Uh, I would put Australia above England. Even Australia though, very dangerous, yeah. E- e- even though England quite good, which is good as Achilles. Does that matter? Uh, yeah, without without Cooper, without Hooper as well, because we don't know when he'll when, we, we don't know when he, we don't know when he will be coming back. But the All Blacks are six, is what we're saying here, is it? Yeah, now well, f- f- yeah, I think f- yeah, fifth at best, but m- most realistically sixth. All right, that's the killer line. SKG, thanks very much. Just got eight forty this morning here on OTBAM. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number, or of course you can uh, get us on our YouTube channel. Leave a comment there. Now, we're back at Vicar Street in association with Cadbury FC, a massive roadshow coming your way on the 17th of August. Michael Owen, Ian Wright, Emma Byrne and Karen Carney will be our guests. Show you some great stories in the night as the four legends of the game reminisce about their careers and preview the rest of the season. It's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited, so don't delay. Go to otbsports.com forward slash events. And a reminder, the ticket proceeds will go towards supporting Irish women's grassroots football. We're going to buy kit with the proceeds. So it's um, a great night, a celebration of women's football and all for a very good cause. Coming up next, John Duggan's latest virtual insanity. Before that, here's a snippet from the discussion on the show last night about America's sporting Mount Rushmore that we mentioned a little bit earlier. Have a look. On Serena Williams, yes, Katie says, US sport Mount Rushmore. Oh, no. Serena no. has to be on there. Who misses out? Woods, Ali, Brady, Jordan, etc. The US Mount Rushmore it would be impossible. It's all very recent as well. Like, I mean, you, how can you not have Babe Ruth on there? Yeah. You know, like, I mean, the, the, like baseball has to come into it. It's uh, it's it's Jackie the sport Robinson. that invented it all. Jackie Robinson for how important everything he was. Michael Phelps, does he not get a mention? Michael Phelps, I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, 
there's, there's people that I can't even think of that's right possible. now, like Jesse Owens. Yeah, it's possible. You know, <laughs> don't even know Carl Lewis. Yeah, yeah and we'll leave Carl Lewis off. He's he's on he's on the the the, the hill beside Mount Rushmore. Mm. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! It's always something Donnie Darko with that intro. I don't know what it is. It's like a massive head or something like that. <laughs> it's like somehow to be like a bunny or something. You've got to come in in the bunny suit sometime. Yeah, I must, yeah. It was a good film. Nathan came in in the bunny suit one time. It was all very strange. He did, yeah, for Easter. It was, um, yeah, he just out of nowhere. Like, it wasn't even one of those where he like lost the bet or was prodded into doing it. He just showed up in a bunny suit one day and was like, okay. And said nothing. Okay. I just stood there in a bunny suit, said nothing, and it weirded everybody out. Yeah, that was sorry, that was it. I think you were about to go live in the old news talk studio. It was my birthday. It was your birthday, that was it. That was a classic prank and uh you'd gone on air and then Nathan walked into the studio and just sat down like we didn't know it was Nathan or Jared didn't know it was Nathan and I think there was just like an awkward silence on the radio for a few minutes. I mean it's uh, what is this? It's probably still um <laughs> still back. It's very our, very strange. Uh right. John. Will's out of Taurus wins this week. So it is the uh, FedEx uh, St. Jude Invitational on the PGA Tour World Golf Championship event in Memphis. It starts tomorrow at about 1.15 Irish time. Will Zalatoris is 25 to 1 for 12 each way for virtual money, fifth of the odds for eight places. It's quite remarkable. In 33% of his major starts, he's finished runner-up. Never won on the PGA Tour. But Will Zalatoris, I think, will love this course this week at Southwind. It's a fairways and greens course all the way. He was tied eighth on his first start in it last year. All of his rounds were in the 60s. Um, to me, he just improves when he gets to bigger stages. And I think if he's going to make the breakthrough, this is the course he's going to make the breakthrough on. It's a tricky course. It's a par 70. It's got challenging rough dog legs, water, Bermuda greens. Uh, it's going to be a test of approach play and, and tee to green play. And he's the top player on the tour in approach play. We know that those short puts can be a little bit of a, a nightmare for him. But he's got a tough streak. He sacked his caddy last Friday at halfway in the Wyndham Championship. Uh, so he's not afraid to make big decisions. I think he's mentally tough. And I think this is the week Will's out of horse is going to break through with 25 to 1 uh, in, the, in the FedEx St. Jude. So that's my headline tip this week. The other two players... Russell Henley is 50-1 to 1 for five each way. Um, he's really in form, right? So he was tied fifth last week at the Wyndham Championship. He was tied tenth the week before that. He is a brilliant iron player, only second behind Zalatoris in approach play, which is what's needed this week. In his back catalogue, he's got a tie for seventh here. He played out of a skin in January, but was beaten in Hawaii by Hideki Matsuyama. I only think he's coming around now to that kind of form again. And he is an elite-level player to win against. Like you remember, he stared down Rory in Florida a few years ago, Russell Henley at 50-1. to 1. And the outsider, complete rank outsider, I'm sticking with Denny McCarthy for 3 each way at 200-1. to 1. Last week, I headlined him at 35-1. to 1. Now he's 200-1. to 1. So now he's 40-1 to 1 to get into the top eight. And I think for a guy who only turned up once at this tournament and was 18th when he was playing much worse than he is now, he's been in the top 10 three of his last six starts. People can say, well, he doesn't play against elite fields. He nearly won the US Open. He was right there around Matt Fitzpatrick on the final day. I think Denny McCarthy, if he can bounce back, two miscuts is factored into his price of 200 to 1. But I do think on those Bermuda greens, he's the best putter on Bermuda greens on tour. I think he could give people a bit of a surprise run for their money at 200 to 1 for Denny McCarthy, Russell Henley as well. But the Headline tip this week, folks, for virtual insanity, Donnie Darko style is Will Zalatoris. Okay, John, good stuff. That is this week's edition of Virtual Insanity. There is golf news, really, that um, has yeah. 
overshadowed all this. The, the, the people are blah 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 chatting away. The gossip is is that there was um, a textual exchange between Sergio Garcia and Greg Norman that um, came out in the deposition around the legal case, and uh, well, Sergio was like reporting back. Some of these guys, they're not going to come with us. A lot of lot of blowback. Greg Norman's get me names. Get me names. And if there's any threats coming from the PGA Tour, get it in writing. Good man, Sergio. Be a, be a good fella now. Go and do what you're supposed, supposed to do and keep convincing everybody to come. Sergio was having doubts, basically, it looked like, uh, in the textual exchange. Right. And um, that was all very interesting. But more stuff came out too. Yeah, well, three current live players, Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford and Matt Jones, took a court case to get back into the PGA Tour for these fall events, these FedEx Cup events. They lost that in San Jose last night. So they lost that court bid. The antitrust bigger case is going to be held in September of next year. But the big, I suppose, story is that Cameron Smith, he's the number two player in the world. He's the Open champion, the most recent major champion. He is the player's champion. So he's the winner of the most prestigious PGA Tour event in Sawgrass in Florida earlier this year, is reportedly, according to the Telegraph, defecting to live for $100 million after the FedEx Cup. So he turned up yesterday. There's a press conference uh, said, I'm here to play the FedEx Cup, mate. Um, Cameron Percy, one of his fellow countrymen at Journeyman Pro, said that Cameron Smith and Leishman, Mark Leishman, are going to leave to live. And he says, like, I'm a man of my word. I'll tell you when I'm, when I'm thinking about my future, not Cameron Percy. And then he was asked, so what about the reports from the Telegraph? Is it a yes or no? Are you going to live? No comment. So <laughs> it was just a crazy scene, really. And uh, he's going. Like, this, like, to me, he's absolutely going. Cameron Smith is actually the first defection that you'd care about in a way like obviously the rest of them have uh, massive reputations but he's the one who's currently playing really yeah. well and is yeah. drawing a crowd and is charismatic and has just dominated the field and had one of the most exciting uh, major victories that you're ever going to see and you know has put the whole continent in fuego again about oh we've got another golf superstar coming uh, with the rest of them it was like uh, you know okay Grant. Well, uh, well, everybody you would have expected to join Live Golf did join Live Golf. Yeah. Um, I think Greg Norman has appealed to Smith's patriotism, if this is true. I think they want to have a lot more events in Australia. Is this going to bring Live and the PGA Tour to the table to maybe trash this out and negotiate something where maybe that Live happens between October and December or something like that? And they have a uneasy truce. But uh, it's got so bitter, like Fred Couples... Like, so it was Taylor Gooch, Hudson Swafford and Matt Jones. Apparently, Gooch and Swafford are waiting in their car uh, outside the tournament uh, venue in, in Memphis <laughs> to get in. And uh, obviously, they're not going to get in now. So they're going to be like, um, you know, kicking stones. Uh, so, um, but Fred Couples uh, went on Twitter there. I think he said, deny, deny, deny on Twitter. So if you look at Davis Love's podcast there recently with uh, Alan Shipnuck, um, like you just, you know, really quite down on Phil Mickelson. This has got bitter. Like Justin Thomas, uh, Scotty Scheffler, I think these players are uh, aggrieved that there's been uh, their fellow peers or their former um, uh, you know, colleagues are now taking uh, legal action against them. So this has got quite bitter. And I think the bitterness at the moment is overriding any chance of a reconciliation. This has got, like, it's, it's seen as, a, as, obviously, there's a Saudi sports watching element. There's the geopolitical element with Trump. Uh, at Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, where it's it's it's, it's becoming a, an anti-Joe Biden rally, like the craziness of that. 
And if the Saudis are saying, hmm, you know, Trump could get in here or we could have a Republican president and we have like a quite a quite geopolitical um, association that's close with golf, it's going to be a much bigger deal than Newcastle United, <laughs> in my opinion, for example. So um, the, real, the key thing stickler here is what's going to happen with the world golf ranking points? Because you've all these board members like Fred Ridley from uh, the Masters, uh, the RNA guy, Martin Slumbers, they're all sitting on a board who decides, is Liv going to get into the golf rankings? Now, for Cameron Smith, it does, shouldn't matter because he's got a five-year exemption. Uh, for Dustin Johnson, for Bryson DeChambeau, it shouldn't matter. But for those other golfers, it's going to matter more and more because yeah. they won't be able to get into the majors eventually. All right. We will, we will see. Uh, what else going on? Well, Rovers last night, uh, great to see that, that like, it's at least €3 million. Euro. And actually, the difference between the Conference League money and the Europa League money is not that substantial. Um, but they've got a free shot now at that Europa League group stage. If they could beat Ferran Faros over two legs, they beat Scoopy 5-2 on aggregate. So they're into the Conference League group stage. Whatever happens, they're flying through Shannon today, which is disappointing. Obviously, that they, they can't sort that out. They ended up um, getting rerouted to uh, Dublin because of fog in Shannon. So they arrived. Oh, did in, they? Yeah. Right. Um, it, all, it all worked out in the end. OK, well, that's, that's nice that we have a country that works that way. Um, Serena Williams I suppose we were you know we were having a discussion there on News Talk because is she the greatest sportswoman of all time you know she'd have to be up there uh, is, is not using the word retirement but she's going to be stepping away from tennis after the US Open Fanny Banker's coon of course yeah um, yeah, I, yeah that, that's, a, that's actually a fascinating question and also kind of like what the sort of the leading your sport into like a, a new age is always going to be a big part of that I always have uh Babe Dietrichson Zaharias down as the greatest sportswoman of all time and I can't even remember why exactly that is but just <laughs> the multiple sport obviously uh, as a golf nut uh, John would be familiar yeah, with what she yeah, did yeah. Uh, but she was definitely like world class at uh, was it a track and field? Yeah, well, at the, well. Uh, the Olympics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. I did manage to uh, yeah. save myself there. You know, when you start talking, you're like, oh, crap, I've started to dig this hole and I'm a couple <laughs> of feet deep. No, I'm, I'm confident. At least you're not wearing a bunny outfit. Uh, Jackie Joanna Kersey, you know, is obviously up there. Steffi Graf. Um, so many people up there. Um, Katie Ledecky, Addison Felix, all these all these stars, and obviously your own Katie Taylor. Um, so, yeah, Serena's stepping away. Um, you know, it's amazing from Compton. I haven't seen King Richard. Have you guys seen it? No, we were just saying earlier, we haven't. Uh, none of us have seen it. I've seen the documentary that she made, but it was, it was grand. But obviously, you know, those personal documentaries, there's always an element of, okay, where's the bit where she's actually fighting with her assistant, you know, where she's fighting with the producers. Um, you, don't, you don't get to see the real Serena. Yeah. Well, we've seen it on the court at times. Uh, sometimes she hasn't covered herself in glory. Um, but we wish her well. Uh, Rangers won last night. Man United uh, have pulled out of the race to sign Mark Arnautovic. That we're saying this on the Wednesday after the Premier League has begun is, is quite surreal already. They were the only ones in the race as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. So always can be careful with the language you use. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right, lads. Um, do we have something we want to show? Yeah, the, you mentioned the bunny outfit, Donnie Darko time here. This is the 15th wow. anniversary of Off the Ball. It wasn't your birthday, Ger, it was OTB's birthday, April 13th, 2017. And for the 15th birthday celebrations, Nathan showed up in a bunny outfit. Like, given it's April, I presume he had it bought for Easter and was going around to houses like a trick-or-treater dressed up as a rather threatening-looking bunny. And he was like, you know what, I'm going to pull this trick on uh, my work colleagues. And of course... Um, it led to great amusement and everybody else definitely got the joke that he was going for there you go uh, he, he looks so young doesn't he fresh faced yeah wow uh, not that he doesn't anymore of course 853 if you want to get in touch 0879 180 180 is the whatsapp number now 
Uh, OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're joined on the line by Dermot Corrigan of The Athletic to talk about the latest situation at Barcelona, which is wild. Dermot, good morning to you. How are you? Hey, Joe, how's it going? Um, yeah, pretty wild, all right, around Barcelona these days. Like, I, it, it, I, to, I, it, I have no idea where to start with this because it's so complicated and bizarre. Um, there, there was reports overnight that um, Manchester City have, have denied that Bernardo Silva is going to join them for 40-odd million or 50-odd million. And the whole world is wondering, how are they financing all this stuff while at the same time trying to take their former board to court or certainly take a court action that will annul contracts that the former board put in while we all heard that they were a billion in debt and completely broke. So can you maybe just give us a quick explainer of what the hell is going on? Yeah, it is, it is super complicated. And yeah, even trying to, even a quick explainer is a token. But yeah, Barca are, they have huge financial problems that they inherited from from the previous board um, under Bartomeu. Laporta came in about 18 months ago now, returned as president. And since then, he has been trying to, to sort out their debts. They've done a lot of work off the pitch, refinancing debts. They brought in Goldman Sachs. Um, so they, they kind of have, they have access to money. Um, like It's a bit like they've uh, remortgaged the, the camp now. They've remortgaged everything that they can and refinanced their debts. So they, they do have access to money that they can spend on players. That continued this, this summer when they have a sold or, or taken in money for their future TV rights. So they're taking a lot of money up front, like 600 million euros or so from, from American investors. <coughs> and a, in exchange for for TV rights going 25 years into the future, so they'll be paying for that for a while. So they, they do have this money that they want to spend on players, um, including maybe Bernardo Silva, who, who Xavi would like to get in. La Liga are saying that, hang on a minute, like this, and just because you can you can mortgage yourself into the future doesn't mean it's such a good idea. And La Liga have pretty tight salary cap rules, so they are are enforcing those rules. So at the minute, all the players that Barca signed this summer, Lewandowski, Rafinha, um, Koundé, the defender they got from Sevilla, along with the players that they re-signed, whose players had run out, including Dembele, they're not able to play against Rayo Vallecano on on Saturday as things stand. There's a row going on with the Liga about the, the fine print of, of how Barca have raised their money this summer about, about whether it's possible or not. So yeah, it's chaos. They're, they're trying to get rid of De Jong. I, the, the stuff about it being an illegal, um, De Jong's contract being illegal can be seen kind of as a way of, of putting pressure on him to leave, whether to Manchester United or to Chelsea, because that would help them in their their the fine print with La Liga around being able to register their new signings, but again, I hope some of that made sense because because it is it is just super complicated at the minute. The fact that they can't play the players that they've signed this summer in the first league match of the season is absolutely remarkable. I, I can't remember a scenario like this ever in world sport where one of the biggest brands in the game has been so chronically mismanaged that they can't use the players that they've spent a fortune on in the matches. And that the, the league is the one who are saying, no, no, you can't do this. Because normally it's in the league's interest to make sure that from the TV rights perspective that Lewandowski is playing because they want as big an audience as possible. It's in the league's interest to get this situation sorted. So imagine how difficult it must be for them to say, look, lads, you, you can't do this. You just can't. You can't be doing this, lads. <laughs> yeah, like the relationship between the Liga, uh, President Javier Tevez and Barcelona's Laporta is not good. Um, you go back to the, the Super League when, when Barca were involved in that and are still involved in that. They were in, in court in Luxembourg um, last month trying, trying to fight that battle. 
there is a lot of brinkmanship going on as well. Um, like I've been talking to people at, at La Liga and people around Barcelona this week just for reporting on the Athletic. And on both sides, there's kind of a feeling that it will get sorted out, that the, a lot of this is is noise. A lot of this is, is kind of negotiating in public. There's constant communication between them. But yeah, La Liga are kind of forcing Barca into into a situation where, where maybe they will have to fold. Maybe they will have to choose between players. Like maybe it might be possible to register Lewandowski under the rules, but not to um, to register Rafinha, for instance, or or you know the Xavi or or somebody at the club is going to have to decide who's more important to register. Which again is is kind of crazy. It, it's Wednesday morning now. They have until Friday to sort it out. If something happens in the meantime, like say De Jong agrees to go to Chelsea, that would help them a lot. They might be able to register everybody. And it's kind of crazy. And you talk to people around the dressing room and they say that the players are not really that affected by it. There's been such drama at Barcelona over the years, going back to the rows between Messi and, and the previous president, Bartomeu. You know, the, the, the dressing room are kind of used to all this kind of crazy noise going on behind the scenes. You know, Neymar, all the things that went on with him as well. When he was at the club, so according to them, the players are, are focused. They're able to, um, you know, they're they're training this morning and um, getting ready to, to play. Xavi has, you know, he's Lewandowski in his team that that he's he's working on for the weekend because they're all working under the assumption that he will be able to play. But it is it's surreal and it just doesn't go on at any other club for sure. And it seems to have like permeated throughout all aspects of the club. Like you talk about, maybe the players not being overly affected by it. I presume it was hard for Martin Braithwaite to to not be affected by yeah. getting booed the other night. And now the whole, one of the many, many angles in all of this is like, oh, the Barcelona fans all of a sudden, uh, maybe not as, as cool as we thought they were. And the, just the, the whole club just has a complete stench about it. It's not just in the boardroom anymore. Yeah, like it went back with Dembélé as well. You might remember last last January, Dembélé, who you know was a bit of a flop, um, who had come in to, to replace Neymar a couple of years ago. The club were trying to force him out. The sporting director of the club went on TV saying he's never going to play for the club again. He was being whistled when he came on to play in some games back in January and February. Xavi kind of rehabilitated him. He he got his confidence back up. He played quite well towards the end of the season, and now he's back. And he was being cheered by by the same fans who were who were whistling Braithwaite. And an extra complication is Braithwaite and De Jong have shared the same agent. Um, so so yeah, like they do put out that the players are, are sealed away from it, but um, not that they don't know that it's going on. It's just that they they can kind of compartmentalize, or they can, um, or, or at least try to compartmentalize it in their brains and say that you know it's the players are quite selfish in a way, and they want to perform and they they want to be in the team. But but yeah, it's 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 obviously not a good situation to be in going into the first game. It's I, I, I... Part of this also is once the football starts, people start talking about the football because it's going to be very interesting. They have this collection of young players. They now have this collection of really old players uh, who, if they gel, should be very interesting to watch. And they've got a, a young manager who's very charismatic and it's going to be interesting to see how successful or otherwise he is. So is there a, a sense that uh, all of the boardroom wrangling will become less important, assuming the players that they've signed can play for the club and that actually this then becomes the B story as opposed to the A story that it is at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Like that's the, that's the plan is that they're taking these risks or they're, they're doing everything that they can to get players in like Lewandowski, especially because he's going to score the goals. That's going to win them games. It's going to get them positive headlines. It's going to bring in more sponsors, get more fans to go to the camp now because the crowds of the camp now were down last year. And they, they talk about a virtuous circle, which happened the first time around when Laporta was, was president and, um, he came in at a, a difficult time for them in the early 2000s. They signed Ronaldinho. They had 
Xavi and, and Iniesta, who maybe is like Gavi and Pedri these days, and it's kind of propelled itself forward. There was lots of of uh, shenanigans, I'd say, uh, at the club during Laporta's first term too. Under Bartomeu, there was as well. But you know, they they won the triple in 2015, and Bartomeu was re-elected a couple of months later with a, a huge landslide. You know, people do. It's it's all about if if the club are winning games, they're beating Real Madrid. If they're winning trophies, um, in theory, that that solves everything. But if they don't, um, is is the big problem of, of what happens then because they have. You know, they've taken on extra debt. They've signed all these players. If, for instance, they're not able to, they can't find a way to raise them. If the young won't go, if they if they can't get the, the problem sorted out with La Liga, what happens then? But there's just this kind of uh, confidence that Laporta inspires in in the people around him. He's he's a very charismatic guy. He's a very optimistic, confident guy, and he he seems to think that he's just almost through force of personality or through the size of Barca's brand that they'll be able to to come through it. it it sounds like he enjoys having the noise if Barca are in the headlines it, it, it's good for them it's people are talking about them that's where they want to be and it's um, yeah again just repeat that it, it just doesn't happen anywhere else it's a it's, it's a unique thing that goes on at Barcelona and again it, it doesn't seem like it's just a boardroom like I mean that incident with the fans booing a player would suggest that maybe they're like Laporta is onto something here or that there is a level of blind belief within the Barcelona supporting fraternity that this thing is going to work out in the end or that they might actually be doing the right thing here yeah like if you if you live in Barcelona if you if you read the Catalan sports press which are very close a lot of reporters there have very good sources at the at the camp now and there's a kind of narrative that <clears throat> excuse me that can be shaped and if you if that's your your bubble I guess then you've a very different idea of Barcelona than if you read the, the English media your Man United fan you're wondering what the hell's going on with with Frankie de Jong or you read the, the financial media and you look at the all the levers that they've they've been um and been setting off this season and what that means for the club into you know 10 20 years time a lot depends on on the focus and you know football fans want their team to do well and um, if you're a Newcastle fan or a City fan or or a Chelsea fan you know you you manage to, to compartmentalize as well what um what's going on and you can still cheer on the team and yeah that it's even multiplied if you're a Barca fan that that just listens to the local media there and just talks to to your own fans and goes to the games I know fans are obsessed with uh, their team's debt, but debt's fine if you can repay it. And uh, the, the the risk that they're taking here is that the team will perform at a level that will continue to put, as you said, that virtuous circle in place. Um, is the debt fine? Like, uh, have the economists who've taken a look at this gone, that's fine? Or is it is this Peter Ridzell's leads that we're looking at? Uh, you know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like the, is it the take of it where it's like, you know, we have an expert the, the TV show the thick where they have an expert who contradicts something he goes I'll find you another expert who can who can tell you that that it is true yeah um Barcelona leaning economists say that it's fine and the people at the club that they have they've done deals with people like Goldman Sachs to, to refinance the debt to push out into the future and they're very confident that they can grow the revenues of the club that Barca is such a such a huge brand, um, you know, one of the biggest football clubs in the world, or they say that the biggest football brand in the world, and they have all these plans to to monetize their global fans, to to get people in, in Ireland or, or in China or the United States or wherever to to pay membership fees to become Barca fans to get extra content over the internet. They're going into crypto space as well, which is you know again depends a lot on your point of view whether that's a good idea or not. But they they feel that they can they can really take another step forward as they did you know back 20 years ago with the guys who, who a lot of them were at Man City now 
um, that Barca's medium and long-term future is is going to be fine. There's going to be a payoff to debts. That a lot of that is um, based on maybe they're going to be in the Super League as well. They're still quite confident that some kind of Super League is going to go ahead and that that's going to exponentially increase their revenues. The problem is if if everything crashes and burns this year, if if Xavi can't handle the dressing room, <clears throat> maybe Lewandowski gets injured, maybe key players like Pedri or, or Ter Stegen or somebody is out for a while that they don't really have somebody who can who can replace them and the team you know fails to get into Champions League or drop out again. That that kind of thing would be a huge problem for them, but they're they're quite confident it won't be and that. Um, yeah, that they're able to handle the, the the debts that they have. Can I just ask you a little bit then about the the football side of it? Because it definitely feels a little bit like when Xavi came in, there was a supermarket sweep. We'll buy and take everybody that we can possibly get, and we'll put them in the team, or we'll see if they can make an impact in the team, and then obviously qualify for the, the Champions League. Everything seems okay, but now those players who they signed, like Aubameyang's being linked with Chelsea, um, it'd be a short period of time. I don't know. Did, Amatroyer play any football? I'm not sure, but like, who is who's the architect? Who's the this version of the cheeky Bagaristan or whoever was buying the players at that point? Who's the sporting director going? Yeah, no, this all makes sense. I can add this guy who's you know, at the very end of his career, or I can uh, let's re-sign Dembele. I, who is making those decisions? Yeah, the the sporting director at Barca's guy called Matteo Aleman, who's um. He's a very experienced uh, guy. Been around La Liga. Was president of Mallorca when Mallorca were very good back in the early 2000s. Real Madrid tried to sign him. He was then. He was at Valencia for a while. Won the Copa del Rey there. Built the team there that won the Copa del Rey. And he's a super astute guy. He's very good at. He's more a numbers guy than a than a football guy. He, he doesn't. He's not a former player or anything. But he's he's very good. They also have Jordi. He's very good at at the the contracts end of it, the money end of it. They have Jordi Cruyff, who's come back to the club. Um, Johan Cruyff's son, former Man United player as well, who has a load of experience um, at different smaller level clubs around the world, um, but but knows football really well. And, and Javi has a big role in in identifying players and, and deciding who they're going to sign. But then there's Laporta. You know, Lewandowski seems to have been more a Laporta idea that, than anybody else. There's other kind of because it's Barcelona. There's other directors. There's other people there involved who are involved in scouting and it's a bit like they've all got they've all got what they wanted um, like Laporta wanted Lewandowski Xavi wanted Koundé to come in a, as a defender now they, somebody picked up Christensen from Chelsea because that was a good deal on a, on a free transfer but they've got they've got too many players maybe to fit them all together and it will be a huge challenge for Xavi to, to get the best 11 or get the best shape and get things working couple of people I'm speaking to wonder, like they said, that the mood within the, the team is really good. And you could see in the in pre-season, the team were, were playing very well, scoring lots of goals. You know, it's pre-season and some of the opposition they were playing weren't great. But the, there is a there was a buzz around them and there is a lot of optimism looking at it. It's to see now, you know, if things go wrong, say they lose a Clasico, they, they have a difficult Champions League group, something happens, how Xavi manages it, how he manages disillusioned players, if De Jong stays and he's on the bench all the time, or if... Um, you know, Christensen doesn't even get a game after being signed and they made promises to him. How Xavi deals with all that is going to be super interesting to see. But the the evidence is that he, he's pretty good. He, he knows he knows what he's doing. How he rejuvenated or rehabilitated Dembele was really impressive and Dembele was firing at the end of last season. So again, again in football and especially at Barcelona, it depends on your perspective on, on what you want to happen maybe. But if you're a Barca fan, a lot of them are very optimistic about how things are going and think that they can challenge for La Liga and, and be competitive in the Champions League again this year. All right, that's uh, the, we, we all felt that way at the start of the season and then um, yeah. you get 
beaten by a team newly promoted 2-0. Uh, uh, sorry, I, 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 dive, I dive, digress. Um, the, the quality of the young players is obviously the other thing that I presume is giving the Barcelona fans some hope for the future. Is the evolution of that um, particular trio of, of teenagers... Uh, that we've been talking about for a long time is that going to be the bedrock of the team into the future or actually have they managed to sign enough players so that they can not rely on those to win them a league this year for example yeah that, that is super interesting because um, speaking to maybe going back 18 months or so when Laporta was coming in as president there was a lot of talk about how you know Pedri and Anzu Fadi and Gavi these are going to be the guys who are going to build the team around even some Barca fans saying they didn't care you know we can finish fourth in in La Liga and make the champ once we make the Champions League we don't need to be you know winning trophies because we are Barca we're you know, more than a club we're based around these these young players that that idea kind of went out the window last year when it seemed like they might not get into the Champions League and they went for Aubameyang and Ferran Torres and now this summer again so it, it's kind of interesting to see how whether Gavi's um gets a place in the team because he's up against Kessie now um, who, who they've just signed maybe De Jong stays they've so many options Anzu Fadi as well you know he, he was being marketed as their new number 10 he inherited Messi's jersey last year but he's had so many injury problems that they couldn't really rely on him and now they've signed a load of of big attackers to play on the wings like Ferran Torres and uh, Rafinha for, from Leeds this summer so maybe he won't get a game maybe that will affect his I forgot about Ferran Torres <laughs> what <laughs> They have spent so much money on on players. It's um, yeah. I mean, look, if they can get them all to play together, fair enough. A quick Frankie Dion question: um, There was one report that perhaps Chelsea were willing to pay the deferred money um, and soak up that cost. If that's the case, is that the out that everybody needs? Maybe it would make the most sense. Um, like Dion, he clearly didn't want to go to Man United. He wasn't super interested about playing in the Europa League, and he, he definitely wasn't going to. Um, going to give up any money in order to to go and play there. I, from from everything that, that I've heard, De Jong himself is, is very happy in Barcelona, loves the city himself and his his girlfriend. They got engaged earlier on this year. They've bought a new house. Um, he, he, he likes the lifestyle. He likes playing for Barcelona. He's always been a Barca. People say you've always been a Barca fan as a kid, but you know, for Dutch players, it, it's so huge to follow in Christ's footsteps. And he... he he doesn't want to give up any money, but he actually does want want to stay, and he feels that he can fight and play for his place. It has got very dirty and very um, just 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 not nice at all. The atmosphere around it, and from his agent's point of view, a big move would, would make a lot of sense as well. You could go to Chelsea, you could get get all the money that you're owed up front. You can play in the Champions League there as well. It's not such a bad bad option. So. Maybe maybe he will end up going in the end, but it will be because things that kind of Barca dream that he had turned so nasty because of what happened with the previous president, and again now with the current hierarchy, which would be well maybe a pity for him and just a pity in general. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, do you expect it to come to an end, or do you think that maybe he might still be there in September? I think it's still more most likely that he'll still be there in September. I, I, who knows with Barcelona and who knows with with football and the transfer market and stuff? But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My 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 good feeling will be that he'll still be there and, and they'll find a way to, to register everybody and it, they'll just kick the can down the road and, and hope that this virtuous circle does work out with, with all the great players and um, it'll be Javi's problem on, on who he picks. All right. Um, I think there was a, a, a tweet that was sticking up here. Uh, the big short, but it's explaining whatever it is that Barcelona are doing. That's uh, uh, um, somebody comparing. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Is it... Uh, 
Anthony Bourdain using uh, the, the price of fish to explain what the hell is going on. They definitely need to, to get uh, uh, an equivalent of that done for this Barcelona thing. There's going to be a great book in this, Dermot. I hope you're writing one. Yeah, taking notes. Yeah, good man. <laughs> uh, quick word on Real Madrid, who, like, you know, are watching all this going on. <laughs> what are you doing? You just sell a training ground to the government and you get out of all this problem. That's all you have to do, lads. You're in the halfpenny place when it comes to dealing with crisis. No crisis in Real Madrid. Really quiet. Everything going very well. Coming off the back of an incredible season. They re-signed all their young Brazilians for bio-clauses of billions. Like, it's the perfect Real Madrid situation, right? Yeah, it's, it's, ama- it's worked out amazingly well for them, really. Considering, you know... <sighs> Back at the end of last season, they thought they were going to send Mbappe. Then he turned him down. That was such a big kind of public humiliation for Florentino Perez. We all kind of stood back and wondered how we how we'd react to that. <coughs> Excuse me. But then a week later, they won the Champions League. It was to, to go with La Liga title. Carlo Ancelotti smoking his cigars on the open top buses in in Madrid, and they're still on that cloud of of just just happy place with Madrid. Still, they have done good uh, business in the transfer window. You know, got their business done early, signing Rudiger from from Chelsea and young midfielder Chouameni from uh, from French football, who who's, looks a really good player, a really good addition to, to the team. So yeah, everybody's happy out at Madrid. In a kind of interesting way, there Perez it has been helping Laporta to sort out the, the Barcelona problems. That it's not it's kind of not in their interest for Barca to fade away. They need a a rival there as well. So again with the connections that they have through the Super League that um, Florentino has been you know uh, helping out Laporta and making connections to help him raise some money this summer and try and sort out their their financial problems which in itself is kind of interesting but yeah Madrid are, are super happy out they've got this, the European Super Cup tonight they should beat Frankfurt in that you would imagine another trophy to celebrate and, and kick off La Liga's champions at the weekend Are Real Madrid the good guys now? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it is difficult to to actually uh, to go that far, but um, <laughs> looked at from they're definitely the the better run of the two clubs. It, and again, as both clubs who are owned by their members, one is is total chaos at Barcelona, where democracy doesn't seem to um, to help them out that much. Whereas at Madrid, Florentino, it is in theory a democracy, but he has it well under control. And yeah, there are five Champions Leagues in eight years, and finances are pretty healthy and new Bernabeu are going to be opened up next year which is is pretty stunning as well so they're in they're in a good place In an interview with Paul Kimmage one time Park Harrington said what we need is a benevolent dictator that may be very well what Real Madrid have at the moment and um, maybe there's a gap there in Barcelona Great to have you with us Dermot Thanks a million Cheers Cheers Dermot Corrigan you can read his stuff in The Athletic um, I think we all understand a bit more what's gone on they've basically mortgaged their future to try and get out of the hole they're in at the moment and they have like Harlem Globetrotters yeah I yeah. totally forgot about Ferran Torres I really like him I think he's an excellent player yeah oh absolutely like you look at their attacking options like uh, I know uh, Aubameyang's going to be out of there but himself Aubameyang Lewandowski a host of other young uh, stars it's uh, pretty terrifying actually the Barcelona squad Barcelona have won this transfer window if they get Bernardo Silva like which is bonkers so for them to even exist in this transfer window given everything that's happened is remarkable but they've only gone and won it if uh, Bernardo Silva agrees to join for whatever it is 40 to 50 million euro I cannot wait for the the, the subculture that's going to develop in years time Dermot's book of course whenever that comes out but the documentaries on this like they, ESPN will need to go full OJ Made in America and on another this. thing and then this happened yeah. and then they did this uh, 
So let's wait and see what happens. OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you for the rest of the day. You can get this, by the way, on the OTB Sports app or on your smart speaker. Just tell your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio. Uh, Catherine Switzer, OTB Gold, is the story of the Boston Marathon. Uh, Louise Quinn, interview with Koi Gig. This week's episode at three o'clock. Our retro panel is about gambling and addiction at four. And OTB Gold is James McLean talking about uh, his career as well. Follow us across our social channels. Subscribe on YouTube and make sure you subscribe to all of our podcast feeds as well. After the break, we're live in the studio with Phil for the latest installment of Deal or No Deal. I signed for them after the Euros and after my first day's training I was driving home, I was actually thinking, regretting it, what have I done? I like I walked into a circus. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh yeah, the circus... The, the wheel turns and turns and turns and turns. Phil, good morning to you. How are you doing, lads? Where's the merry-go-round taking us this morning? Ah, uh, you know, there's, there's only one club everyone's talking about after one weekend. After one weekend, it's all about Manchester United, isn't it? So, Marco Arnautovic, eh, eh, the, the fan backlash, in fairness, I think, like, they're going to get a lot of slack for not thinking that there might be some fan backlash. Yeah. But football is a complete bubble. They don't remember any of the stuff that Arnautovic did other than he scored a few goals for them when he was at, what is it, Film Drive, what's it called? Twente. Tilburg. FC 20. FC 20. One of those ones. Um, and then, uh, you know, he's pretty cheap and a bit of, bit of aggression in training. He's going to kick Harry Maguire in training. He's going to leave something on David De Gea at the corner. That'll, that'll toughen the hell up, won't it? That's all they're thinking. They forget about the racism and the accusations and the allegations and the suspensions. They don't care about that. Uh, and the transfer yeah, of course to West Ham. And you're yeah, supposed to think about those going things. Going off to China for a couple of years and just actually not being good enough to play for a club like Manchester United. It would have been interesting for a couple of games to see him and Ronaldo up front for the crack, just gesturing towards each other when someone misplaces a pass. But... If he was a better footballer, a much better footballer, I don't think that those factors would have been as important. I think if he'd signed in the middle, if he'd signed like first day of the season for five and a half million, first day of the transfer window for five and a half million, by the time the football comes back, everybody's forgotten and he's just a squad player and you're like, okay, grand, they've added a little bit of depth given all of the players who've left. But the business is being run so chaotically that everything they do is under this massive microscope and they can't, you can't point to a plan if you're signing him but if you'd signed five other players, if you'd signed Rabio at the start of the transfer window, it would have been fine, right? It would have been uh, acceptable, but it, it's coming off the back of the pursuit of Frankie de Jong, and it was all... That's it. Like, that's it. All that's eggs the were in that basket, but then this now goes back to being panic stuff, where they're looking at Rabio, then they're out of it stuff. I, I think regardless of... His, his past I think just in terms of his quality he shouldn't be at a club like Manchester United so I don't think they could have snuck him in the door at any stage um, I, I like there's probably some of those players who won't be good enough but who you sign who are squad players and yeah. who will play in Europa League or EFL who will do fine like he, he could have scored 15 goals for them this season in all competitions and played 10 or 12 Premier League matches off the bench and he might have been like a plan B to lub it forward when you're 2-0 sure down at home would he be happy to sit on the bench 
Anyway, that's at this stage of his career at Man United. I think so. Yeah, do you know? Possibly, but yeah. The, and the money, the money is so great. The, and, and that's the problem. Like you said, there, the, the business has been so badly run, and there was so much optimism when they got Ten Hag that here is a coach who has a plan. But you got to give the guy some tools to work with, and he's brought in a few players. But I said this last week before a ball was even kicked. It looked like he was going to be starting his first Premier League game with Fred and McTominay in midfield and that's how it transpired and it was a disaster. Okay, so Ronaldo is the other big thing. In the papers this morning it's reported that some of his teammates are unhappy with the circus around Cristiano Ronaldo. They don't like Ronaldo. Remember this, what, what's the downside of signing a great striker who, you know, won't Marcus Rashford learn how to, how to keep himself as, a, as, a, as an athlete and... And to finish in the, in the box, what's the downside? Turns out he's a royal pain in the ass, according to the players who aren't very good. Yeah, it's like remember, those this is the perfect scenario. Remember, he always passed in those desserts, and there was a new culture in in place last season that he had set such high standards. But then you look at the game on Sunday, and Brighton score, and the cameras pan to Ronaldo, and he looks pissed off that not only have they conceded, but he has to sit there and watch this. So I can understand why players would be getting frustrated with the, the circus around them. Where does he go? He, he, you know, he's not going to do a Gareth Bale and go to America. He's not going to go to China. He's not going to go to the Middle East because he wants to play in the Champions League. So straight away, he is obviously going to... Benfica are going to qualify. Could he, could he cross the divide in Lisbon and like you know own the city or would it set the city on fire? Who knows? But I just think if they want to progress and Ten Hag wants to take control of all this they need to do it without Ronaldo he'll score goals if he stays there for the season he'll score goals and every time he scores it'll be pointed out that oh, people said that Ronaldo's the problem if he pops up with a winner but you've got to think of the bigger picture and you know Ten Hag is looking at trying to improve but I think that got Ronaldo kind of spot on because Ten Hag if he looks at it from his point of view, he's thinking to himself, well, there's every chance that we don't sign a good striker. Hmm. So if that's the outcome from your transfer window, then you're better off having Ronaldo than not having Ronaldo if your best striker in your squad is going to be Anthony Martial. Yeah, uh, but that goes back to the failings of the club that they haven't lined up a striker that is one for the future. That is, or even, that is established and will be the future for uh, the next had, five years. They, had, they, had, they did... Some, some circumstances intervened that prevented them from having the guy that they thought was going to be their striker for the next 15 years. Um, he's currently on a suspension awaiting uh, criminal charges or I don't know how where how far that's gone. But, um, so, but when that happened, there was no plan B. There was no, like, let's sign some new young strikers and even if they got to loan them out. If you look at what City have done this year, they've sold a bunch of players who've never played for them for loads of money that has allowed them to break even, essentially, in the transfer window. Like, okay, it cost them a billion, a billion and a half to do that, but Man United spent the same amount of money and got almost nothing to show for it. No, and even, obviously, all the headlines have been about Haaland signing, but under the radar, they've signed Alvarez, who was a quality player that would get into most Premier League teams, and he'll score goals for City just shows how, how good they are when they, in terms of their recruitment. And, and so many clubs are so far ahead of United in terms of recruitment. Even look at the game on Sunday. Casado was playing in midfield for, for Brighton. This is a player that had been linked with United a few years ago. Now, what I would say, he's only 20. So if he had signed for United when he's 18, he's not going to play for the first team. It's a lot easier to break into the Brighton team 
and Brighton will probably sell him for an absolute shed load of money yeah. in a couple of years. But and that's buy him and loan him out. That's what what's what Chelsea would have done. You know, yeah. that's what City have done. Uh, generally, the, the players at City are loaning out are players that um, they have come through their academy. But Chelsea are happy to buy a player and loan him out straight away. And that's what Man United could have done with some of those players. Instead, I, like um, every year, they sign five players for ten million, mm. who we haven't heard of since. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Who else are we talking about here? Uh, Cody Gakpo? Cody Gakpo, who plays for PSV. So PSV are obviously going to play Rangers in the Champions League playoffs. So they still have a chance of getting into the Champions League. Now, it kind of got me thinking as well. Who's his international manager? Louis van Gaal. What did Louis van Gaal say to Urien Timber about joining Manchester United? He said, don't go near them. Now... On the flip side, who is Cody Hakpo's club manager? Ruth Van Nistelrooy. So maybe he said, no, it's a great place to go. But he, again, he's a very talented player and he could be one of those players that it, it might take him a bit of time to settle in. And even though United are a club in transition and players should be given time to settle in, you don't get that time at Manchester United. And Eric Ten Hag is going to find that out and he probably already knows that after Sunday's defeat. Where do you think they're going to finish? Well, look, they're not going to, I don't think they'll finish top four. They were so bad last season and they still finished in the top six. So I would imagine they'll still stay in the top six. Are, are you sure that Newcastle and Arsenal aren't going to finish ahead of them? Well, Arsenal finished ahead of them last season. West Ham are the ones that missed out. And that went to the last day. If, um, if West Ham had won on the last day, United would be playing in the Conference League this season. But... Look, it, it's very early days, so I think everyone needs to... I would say everyone needs to relax, but I suppose it's hard to relax when it is early days, but when the structures in place are not in favour of any coach that comes into that club, it it's hard to know. Where did Liverpool finish the first season under Klopp? Was it seventh or uh, Well, eighth? his first full season, they got top four. But the, when he came in in October... Yeah. That's a long time. Like, yeah, you know, they got to they got to a Europa League final, and but I mean, where did they finish in the league? I think it was eighth in the end. Right, so it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that Ten Hag is a good manager and has a terrible season. Absolutely, it's more more likely. Yeah, you need to see season this year. Nobody's pointing to finger at Ten Hag and get rid of like. So you look at that opening day of Klopp and his team. That's not going to be Ten Hag's team. Like, getting in that team is a bad sign. If you want to be at the club long term, I would yeah. argue from uh, unless Ten Hag signs you. If, if you're one of his boys, you're grand. But everybody else is like, now I see what you're doing. Now I know why you got the last five managers sacked. Yeah, Four. and you have to phase out certain players, and you just can't do it all in one go. Uh, like they got rid of Pogba, which has taken a few years, and there's a few other players that they have to get rid of. But they have to bring in the right players to replace them, and. That's just where you would have very little confidence in them doing so. And so, like this week has proved it. Where, like Rabio, I said when we talked about Rabio on Monday, I said he is an upgrade on Fred and McTominay. But that is not a great starting point for. I agree. I, I do agree with that. I do think that he's fine to get in for 15, 20 million. That's, that's actually mm. a fine signing. He's 27. He's an international. You know what you're going to get from him. He's, he's an improvement, so you're improving the squad. And I, like some other player will actually release him to be the third choice as opposed to your first choice week in, week out. I can see why that's okay business. And I, I see your point on that as well. But the deal's not done. No. The deal's not done. No. It's been a whole week. What are they doing? Well, there was talk of him going to Monaco, but they obviously got dumped out of the Champions League qualifiers last night by PSV so maybe that makes up 
They can't do business quietly. They no. need to blah, 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 blah. Like, just yeah. do your business. And, that, and that's it. And I said, how they progress carrying out their business like this year after year, it just seems that whoever goes in is just doomed to fail. Yeah. Right. Timo Werner re-signs for Leipzig two years after leaving for Chelsea. He scored 23 goals in 89 games for Chelsea, which is more than I would have thought. I would have said 15. Uh, it didn't appear to work out. Why did it not work? 95 goals in 159 games for Leipzig. I just think that it, it went up a level. Obviously, the expectation, the, the price tag, he didn't hit the ground running. Also, at times as well, the way Chelsea played probably didn't suit him. And uh, like he had obviously been linked to Liverpool. Now, I, Liverpool were never going to replace Sadio Mane a few years ago with Timo Werner. But if Timo Werner played in a Jurgen Klopp team, I guarantee he would have scored a lot more goals on the left-hand side. Maybe Klopp brings him next year on the cheap. But he went to Chelsea. And one concern you have for Chelsea, even under Thomas Tuchel, as good as they are and can be on their day, they can, they can match anyone. They sometimes don't look potent enough in attack. It's not that they don't have good attacking players, but they don't look cohesive enough. And at times with Timo Werner, it was slapstick stuff where, you know, he'd, he'd beat a few players and then... Do you remember that Southampton game away from home last season where he did end up scoring, but he almost scored one of the goals of the season where he ran around a few players and then hit the post and... Kai Havertz knocked in the rebound and you could see Werner was disgusted he was like okay we've scored but I should have scored that goal you know he had his his moments in the, the Bernabeu in that game against Real Madrid and the, the Champions League as well but it was just too inconsistent one thing is when he was playing he was always a bundle of energy and willing to run in behind opposition defenders no, but just he, couldn't finish he, he looked like a footballer he did I'm convinced that 80% of the 8 out of 10 wingers or attacking midfielders that have ever played football in Europe have played for Chelsea at some point and uh, a good percentage of those people are currently at the club and Timo Werner was thrown in amongst them because Romelu Lukaku was their number nine last season and he was competing with the likes of Pulisic and Ziyech and uh, Havertz and now you can show Raheem Sterling into that mix this season even though he might well play as a number nine for them at, at some point or maybe the guy who's leading the line for them uh, it is a very tough club to succeed at yeah. and I think that he was a victim of that as much as anything else Phil Liverpool's midfield options a little bit thin after the injury to Thiago which I guess we kind of have to expect at this stage of his yeah. career the way his injury profile is big time yeah like he missed he pretty much missed a third of Premier League games the last two seasons and you, you remember when he when he started there was this talk going around that he's actually slowing them down and he's the problem but that's absolute nonsense Is the win rate with, with Thiago starting last season was 88%. So fi- so they they won... Um, Not bad. 15 from 17. Then when he wasn't, when he didn't play, they won 13 from 21. So that dropped to 62%. It's clear when Thiago plays, Liverpool are a better team. But so this is the problem Liverpool have in midfield. Even before this injury happened, I would have said at the start of the season, Liverpool are light in midfield. We know Jurgen Klopp will wait for the right player. And everyone thinks that that is Jude Bellingham, whether he goes next summer or not. But even if that did happen, I still think there must be another right player there because a lot has been made of the Liverpool front three, the the famed Firmino, Mane and Salah. It was about replacing them. So now, obviously, Mane is gone. Firmino has been phased out, even though he started at the weekend. But the midfield three, that was the success that the 
was built on to win the, the Champions League, to win the Premier League. Fabinho was brought in, then you had Henderson and Wijnaldum. Milner chipped in there as well. Obviously, Wijnaldum is gone. Whatever people thought about Wijnaldum in his last season, he was durable. He was available all the time. Yeah. Milner is getting on. He actually made an impact on, on Saturday where he came on. Henderson and Fabinho have both picked up injuries. So they're light there. You've got young, talented players coming through. Harvey Elliott, 19. Fabio Carvalho, 19. But the other three that I mentioned, they're Henderson, Milner, Fabinho. Henderson and Milner both in their 30s. Fabinho, 28. So he's so got... Uh, uh, Nabi Keita, I forgot to mention Nabi Keita. A player that was brought in from Germany for big money and... He you know, has had the injury problems too. He's had injury problems as well, but it's hard to remember him having outstanding games. He's okay. Who's your who's your first first three? Thiago, if everybody's fit, Thiago, Fabinho, and Henderson, or Thiago, Fabinho, and I. I would go Thiago or Fabinho, Thiago, and Henderson. Um, but you can't play that midfield for the whole season, so well, you, you yeah. bring in Elliot. I think Carvalho. I, I think he's he's good to go. He's ready. Um, Curtis Jones. I think is is behind those. Um, he's injured at the moment anyway. Oxide Chamberlain. I'm amazed he's still at the club. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's it's hard to sometimes get rid of these players if they're injured all the time. How do you say like you know if you're trying to get rid of a player and you're basically hoping that they're fit for yeah enough time to get themselves in the shop window but right. Oxley chamberlain unfortunately breaks down too often not at this point yeah Phil good stuff that's uh, today's deal or no deal OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day we're back tomorrow from half seven with Graham Hunter's You Had to Be There Shelburne's American super signing Heather O'Reilly will be live in studio Kieran McGee fresh from her silver at the Commonwealth Games will be on the line plus much more as well OTB AM with Gillette Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 